Today on Coco Disaster, we've got one more in our pockets, and the other one is giving us a high five. Hi, and welcome to Coco Disaster. I'm Chorps Away, and today we have a very special guest. Hey everyone, it's me, Sid Menon, aka Beam Splash. Hello! Hi there. Sid, if you may or may not know, comes from a another uh, friend, a podcast adjacent to ours. I mean that we're <laughs> friends, and that he also has a podcast. It has nothing to do with <laughs> Yeah, <ours>. actually. <laughs> It's called We Thought About Games, which is a games podcast that you should listen to if you like video games. Oh, thank you. Yeah. But that's not what you're here to talk about. We're here to talk about um, kind of an important show, not so much for anime as a whole, but more so for the, the larger series that it connects to. And that's Gundam 0080, War in the Pocket. Yeah. So a little bit of information on the background of, of this show is it was the first Gundam series to not be written or directed uh, by the original creator, Yoshiyuki Tomino, who up to that point had helmed uh, every major series, not the not like the SD side stuff, but all of the other major Gundam series up to that point had all been helmed by him. So this was the first time he pushed creative direction to someone else. As well, it was the first time that they had updated the the Gundam designs for sort of the, the more outdated, simpler uh, robots from previous series. And that ended up bringing up a trend of continuing to upgrade and change and not really modernize, but, you know, give, give uh, each series its own particular spin on these uh, these classic robots. In addition, it's it was the first series, because it was with a new director, the first series not to focus on what Tomino seemed to be interested in, which was the new types or these, you know, kind of like evolved humans. I'm going to come out right now. I'm not really well-versed in Gundam. I know a bit about it. But if I, like, explain terms and stuff, it's a lot for my benefit. <laughs> because I'm, I'm coming into this a little bit blind. Like, I... I I get it, but I I feel like I missed my like giant robot phase. Like I I don't think I watched Toonami in the way that would have led me to watch Gundam. And until like five or six years ago, I didn't really watch anime except for what I had seen on Toonami and like occasional like surprise stuff. So I I I I kind of get it. I've seen a little mm-hmm. bit, but I just. I don't have the same uh, the knowledge as I may have with other larger series. That's why I have Sid here. Sid here is gonna 
is going to be able to tell me everything about old old Gundam. <laughs> Except that uh, I myself, around the time I was most into Gundam, was a time where you could only really buy stuff on DVD. When I was in high school, I didn't have a, a job or anything, and my parents were pretty restrictive about what I could get. So for a lot of these shows, like I only really watched 0080 fairly recently, but I was familiar with the events from reading episode summaries and uh, a couple of websites with descriptions of the, the different mobile suits, the different uh, machines in the shows, reading about those and playing a lot of the games. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was really weird, I guess, to actually see some stuff without like the, uh, the patina of how it was presented in a game that's supposed to make it seem cool or how fans <laughs> of the shows like remembered stuff when they saw it like at the age I wanted to see it. Right, or the crossover aspect of like maybe having to throw out some of the actual oh, events. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> but uh yeah, so that's why we're so well equipped to talk about this Gundam <laughs> show. So <laughs> it was the it was the first series in Gundam to not focus on these the the new types characters and not to focus on the wider conflict of um, of like Earth versus Zeon, and it focuses more on a s- civilian perspective of the war on a colony that's pretty um, separated from all of the conflict, as well as focusing on humanizing the the Zeon soldiers. Uh, everything up to now has been from the perspective of Earth as the hero fighting off these. these other people and this is the first time as far as i understand that the zeons really got characterization maybe outside of char and you know char Char is his own thing he he's effectively like separated from zeon in the way that he's this huge (laughs) overarching character that everyone knows maybe more than they know uh amuro ray yeah they don't put amuro ray in car commercials they put char in car commercials (laughs) char commercials Oh my god! Uh, um, Even better, <laughs> but I mean, to say to that point, like this is definitely one that's focused on the most. Uh, there have been aspects of um, humanizing people in Zeon, but it's it's either contrasted to say like this guy cares about his family a lot, but now he's going to kill a ton of Federation soldiers, or uh, have like a single shot of a soldier like crying out for their mother or something like that before they get blown up. That's especially shown near the end. But, yeah, outside of that, it's it focuses on the fact that, like, it doesn't have to say the enemy's a human, but you are never really meant to cheer them on or think that it'd be okay if they won. Yeah, okay, yeah. Makes sense. So, this series was presented as an OVA, or original video animation, so basically separate releases for each of these episodes over the course of six months. And it presents a very small, very separated story about what the war means for people who are separated from it, for the people on the ground who maybe know about the war, but they don't, they haven't had to experience anything about it. They, they really only know what they've seen from like television and stuff and it takes the, uh, takes the focus especially from the child perspective of a kid named Alfred who doesn't really understand even the the boundaries of the war. He knows a war is happening but he doesn't know anything about who's good or bad. He doesn't know anything about that and that's where 
the perspective of this of the side story is nearing the end of the original conflict, the One Year War. Yes. So before we get into this, I thought it'd be worthwhile to maybe discuss what the original Gundam uh, 0079, kind of what that's about and how that ultimately plays into what's happening in 0080. So in the timeline of Gundam, it's a new timeline still set in our own future, and it does have a date attached to our timeline as to when it begins but they do shift it around here and there, you know, depending on when the series comes out. Uh, called the Universal Century, and it's when mankind has moved its excess population onto space colonies. It's based on a design called the O'Neill Cylinder, uh, which has a lot of thought put into how such a space colony would actually work. And... It kind of has an interesting place in kind of pop culture, because I feel like a lot of sci-fi coming around... Not just at this time, but later on would also use sort of those those cylinders, like police knots in particular is like one that comes to mind where they they really thought about how they're how they're building this and how they're gonna use it for their world. Yeah. I actually speaking of we thought about games, that's it's used in the game Vanquish, actually, which had a, a few released recently. Oh. Actually the uh, the Q in the Vanquish logo is meant to be an angled O'Neill cylinder. <laughs> oh, that's that's kinda neat. Yeah. Huh? And uh for this setting, the Earth is governed by the Earth Federation, which is you know, a world government. But also they govern the space colonies, which leads to a severe amount of discontent, this distant governing body telling them what to do. And so the colonies, which are split into these groups called Sides, uh, the colonies of Side 3, which are the furthest from Earth, declare independence from Earth. Uh, a guy named Zeon Zundaikun declares independence and has a revolution, but shortly thereafter dies in mysterious circumstances, and a family steps in called the Zobby family, uh, and they form the sort of running antagonists of the original Gundam show, who for a long time are at a distance, but they become more and more prevalent and direct. And in uh, the year 0079, like, the, the war has begun by the time the original series starts. Uh, Zeon has dropped a colony onto Earth, uh, targeting their, the Federation's base in South America, but it gets diverted and lands in Australia. And the main characters all live on the colonies of Side 7, where the main character, Amuro Ray, uh, lives, and his father is designing this new mobile suit, the Federation's first ever, because Zeon has attained superiority by developing these giant mobile weapons called mobile suits, which because of the technology they run on generating particles that make long-range nuclear weapons unusable, these things become the most powerful weapons of war. The Federation finally builds them, but Zeon is onto it, uh, and they attack the colony, and Amro is forced to pilot this mobile suit called the Gundam, and the original series follows their battles against Zeon uh, and how they figure into the wider conflict Though Gundam is... The TV series definitely has them fight a lot of the major battles, but in the movies, which are the more canon, I suppose, uh, takes on that material, like which is a sort of compiled version of the TV series, they end up being more of a distraction, or like 
they sort of give the Federation momentum, but by the end, they are not the linchpin upon which their success is placed. Uh, but yeah. All right. And 0080 finds us, um, like, days before the end of this war. So, so it's very near the end of this conflict, and that's kind of where this whole thing starts. Episode 1, How Many Minds the Battlefield, starts us uh, in media res on a, a set of underwater goths? Uh, one of them is a... Uh, there's, there's a few of them. They're actually all improved versions of suits that you might have seen in the original series. So there's a Hygog, a Zagaki, and some Zagans. I'm going to get this out early. I'm not going to know all the names of the robots. I'm so sorry, guys. <laughs> but I will not just call them all Gundam. <laughs> That's as much <laughs> as I can promise you all. Um, but so the Zeons are looking for something at an Arctic Earth Federation base, and they launch several underwater um, Xeon mobile suits to find it and either capture it or, if that fails, destroy it. Yes, and the mysterious mobile suit is set to be launched into space. Right, so it turns out that the thing that they're looking for is, in fact, a, a new, um, like, experimental mobile suit that the Earth Federation is working on. Yeah. However, the Federation seems to be a, a little bit ahead of the, um, the Xeon soldiers, and the Xeon soldiers make it there, like, just as the rocket's about to launch, and ultimately are unable to stop the rocket from launching and getting off of Earth. Yeah. And that leads this, this group, the, the Cyclops team, who will come back later, they lose one of their pilots in this, in this mission, in this very dramatic way. Because, like, before that, tons of Earth Federation people are dying and stuff, but this single Xeon dies, and everyone in the team seems, like, very heartbroken about it, like, and conflicted with taking revenge or, you know, saving this unbridled rage for their, for their mission, yeah. essentially. For this scene, it's not that the Federation is necessarily anonymous. You see people in radar rooms and stuff freaking out and running away, but... They don't have really any names. There's no named Federation presence. You start from the Xeon perspective, you end from the Xeon perspective. These are... You wouldn't be off to think that this might be a show about following the Xeon team. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was weird seeing that as the start. Especially because they, they do a lot more work to humanize these characters, even without names, uh, than they do any of the Earth characters up yeah. to this point. And another thing that I thought was kind of interesting, just by chance... Uh, the YouTube channel Gundam.info has the movies had the original trilogy up for a little while to watch. It's down now, uh, unfortunately. But the action in those, the, the mobile suits definitely like break apart and explode pretty dramatically. And the show takes time to you know show you the explosions and whatnot. But in this, I was kind of surprised by sort of how when the Federation mobile suits get shot down, they sort of die more like a person would. They take a lot of machine gun shots, but they don't split in half or explode. They just fall over and, like, die. It, yeah, there's there's definitely, like, a lack of um, bombacity to, to the action in this series, and we'll get a bit more into that later, I think. But there's definitely, like, a sense of they're almost kind of more human in the way that it all goes down. Yeah, it, it feels very clinical. Yeah, it's it's definitely not cool. 
but then we cut after an opening sequence to an Earth Federation school on Colony Side 6. Yeah, called The Bot. And they are... Uh, we, we open up into a, a school in a classroom of very young children, like 10 years old or something. And um, we were introduced to our main character, Alfred Izaruha, who is hanging out with his friends who are interested in the war from the perspective of, dang, those are cool robots. Yeah, it's kind of similar to like a kid going to the air and water show or something like these Machines of War are just these cool-looking things with cool capabilities to them. Yeah, but they're they're very sad right now because because of all the resources going towards the war, even as it nears its end, and they are talking about these treaties. Um, they're they're forced to eat like synth meat at the at their lunch table. Mm-hmm. But eventually, that that turns to discussions of uh, one of. Al's friends who d- never gets a name. Some of these characters just never get named, and it's it, it's infuriating to me because I have to differentiate between them all. But uh, <laughs> this the, one of his friends' older brother claims to be like a Federation Forces pilot, and this kid's bragging about being able to bring his brother's badge to school and show off like a cool pilot. And uh, uh, one of the girls in the class who who definitely seems to be like the most at odds with these these sort of like bratty kids calls him out on it like you know there's there's no way that you know the Feder- the the earth federation doesn't have mobile suits which as far as they know is totally true yeah well it seems like there's a sort of like some of them say yes some of them say no and it's the things it's true but it's just not the kind of information that's going to reach a colony that's trying to keep out of it right this is very much a neutral colony no one's no one's talking about war touching anything at that place like the most is doing is like supply ships, mm-hmm. but um, Al kind of doubles down and he's like, "Yeah, well, my dad, you know, works for these these supply ships and stuff, and I saw a mobile suit in one of the hangars." And again, she calls him out on it, and he's lying about all the stuff, like it being black and you know huge. And so he goes to the hangar to try to find evidence, or I guess maybe forge evidence, because he knows that this isn't true. He's lying. Mm-hmm. And so he's trying to get some kind of evidence that he's able to use. And so he's he's uh, taking camera shots of all of this sort of, like, kind of confidential information. Like, yes, he's allowed in there because he's the son of someone who works there. But very clearly, he he's doing things he shouldn't be. Yeah, the guy in the hangar, like, once he sees him, does shoo him out of there. And he just says he's looking for the bathroom, you know, the usual stuff. But it's clear that even with whatever permission he has, this is a place he can't be. And that's what gets him so interested. Yeah. And so, um, Al meets up with his father, who is, he seems pretty distant with his father at this point. Uh, Dad's busy working and all that. And uh, on the way home from this sort of, like, stare-on meeting, he he bumps into an old neighbor who had gone to Earth for some sort of training or school named Christina McKenzie, also known as Chris. And she's back because she's been given this government job. Uh, back on the colony um, that she won't really um, explain to Al, but she's got a job there. She's going to stay there. And it seems like Al is very comfortable talking to Christina, whereas later on we see him interact with his mom, and it's clear that Al doesn't have a great relationship with his parents, and Al's parents don't have a great relationship with each other, which might be 
hurting Al and kind of straining his relationship with both of them. Yeah, it, it is. It does echo the original Gundam somewhat, in which Amuro's parents did live separately, and he didn't really have a great connection with either of them. And Al himself is like, he's he's like at the sort of age where this is affecting him a lot more, and he's kind of a little more rebellious, you know, maybe against more of his parents. He's very like standoffish against his mom. Uh, and he plays video games like behind her back. He's locking the door and stuff because he knows it's not what he's supposed to be doing. He's supposed to be uh, studying because he's bad at school. Yeah, it comes up that he's hiding his grades. Yeah, and it turns and instead he's playing sick light gun games about being uh, a mobile suit and like destroying towns and stuff. With Mario sounds. Yeah, it's it's a light gun game that definitely pulls a lot of sound effects from Mario. It's like wow. <laughs> but yeah, so Al doesn't have a very good relationship with his parents. He um he really only can confide in Chris at this point and he talks to Chris about kind of his his troubles and stuff. Like he's talking about how the 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 teacher always has him standing in the corner because he's a troublemaker and he's w- willing to open up a lot more to someone I think he just sees as a friend rather than someone who's like there to boss him around. Yeah. So, anyways, Al makes it to school again, and it turns out that he doesn't have the evidence. And even more, um, the girl who had shut down the boys earlier shows that this this kid who was bragging about his brother's badge really just bought like a toy badge, and he brings a she brings a string of them to school to kind of prove, oh hey, you guys are a bunch of idiot kids. Mm-hmm. And this whole fight is then interrupted because an explosion happens, and it turns out that in this like neutral pedestrian side. Um, Federation and Xeon mobile suits have ended up clashing against each other. Yeah. And instead of running, um, like a lot of the kids do, Al and his two friends decide, wow, this is super dope. We're going to go film these Gundams, these Gundams and, um, oh, no Gundams. I think Zaku's at that point. Uh, no, no Gundams. Shit, fuck, <laughs> I did it. Uh, yeah. They decide that they're going to go and film these, um, what what are they what are they called if they're not mobile suits for the Earth Federation? Uh these models are the uh GMs or gyms for Gundam mass produced. Okay. So the GMs and I think it's it might just be Zaku's at that point for the for the um Xeon soldiers. As far as I remember, yeah. And so they film this and they see that one of the Zaku's is crash landing far into like a park. Um and so Al is running towards it and he knows where this blast zone is so he's going and he goes to just kind of check it out because he's like oh yeah i get to see a robot up close and it turns out that uh, while he's checking this out the pilot has gotten out of this zaku and is pointing a gun straight at him and i i actually think that the last shot of this of this episode is really kind of beautiful because it's Mm -hmm. the, the the detail isn't quite there on the robots, so the the mixing of sort of the nature and machinery is like really well done in this final shot as Al stares up at this pilot who's seems ready to kill him. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where the first episode cuts. Episode two is uh, reflections in a brown eye, and this is where we meet the pilot who. Al isn't scared of this pilot. Al has, like, it seems like he almost has no understanding of the possibility of conflict. Like, he understands that these people are at war, but he doesn't understand, like, 
the actual fighting part because this is very clearly a Xeon guy and he is uh he is not part of that. But he just goes up and he's like, hey, that's a sweet gun. You're a mm-hmm. pilot for this robot? Hey, can I hold your gun? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the 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 soldier is pretty, like, understandably standoffish about it. He's not really willing to talk to, to Al and, like, play along with him. And he he shows surprise at, I guess, Al's bravery, stupidity, um, how isolated uh, Al and this colony seems to be from the war, because they just, they seem to have no idea. Yeah, it's, to him, the war isn't real. Yeah, like, it exists, he knows that, but, like, the actual conflict, whatever. But, um, they, he kind of messes with Al, and... And kind of picks up Al's camcorder, which he's thrown across because he wants to check out this guy's cool gun, and finds that there is definitely some information that the the Xeons could use. Yeah, those pictures from the hangar earlier. Yeah, the the, fo- the footage from the hangar from Al's camcorder is is very valuable because it turns out he did find something very important, and that is the the uh delivery from the the arctic base and so al is uh more than happy to trade away his camcorder data for uh this pilot's badge i guess we should give him a name at this point so i don't have to keep saying the pilot this is uh bernard wiseman also known as bernie and he'll uh he'll show up a bit more but al has gotten he's basically given away government secrets without knowing it and he's Mm -hmm. promised now not to talk about it or talk about the fact that he's you know, he he's even made contact with the Xeon pilot. Yeah, he decides to keep it a secret. Yeah, Bernie's like, hey, just keep this a secret. It's like, okay, cool. Uh, and then he's really excited about his new pilot's badge. Uh, the the thing I notice most about this scene is that <laughs> the data's on a floppy. And it's mm-hmm. just like, <laughs> it's just, man, 1989 was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so weird to think of, but it's not entirely uncommon now to just Imagine such complicated future technology as a mobile suit, but then be like, yeah, people are going to use floppy disks and use regular phones. Or uh, this that's in the original Gundam series is the white base, the cutting-edge warship that the Federation has, is driven with a ship steering wheel. (laughs) So good. Like, wooden and everything. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So... Al goes back to town and he's just loving his new uh his new pilot's badge. He has no connection. Like he he sees people dead and the destruction that some of these robots have caused, like car wrecks and you know, like buildings burst. He doesn't care. He looks at it and he just goes, okay, whatever. And he goes back to his home and he plays and pretends he's a sick robot pilot. Yeah. And a lot of uh, the other kids too just are glad that like school was delayed. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 very weird seeing that that dissonance. But uh, Bernie goes back to to a Xeon base and you know passes off this info. And because he was able to capture it, they don't care how he joins the crew from the the Arctic mission, the the Cyclops team or the Special Forces. And we meet the the three characters. It's Mikhail, Garcia, and Steiner. Yeah. And, uh, they don't, I mean, uh, Mikhail is, like, very, very large, and he seems very violent. Garcia is, uh, a, a little bit, a little bit of a Mexican stereotype, and very, like, 
seems very addled with porn. Like his his <laughs> his robot like cockpit is has like playboys on the sides. Yeah, whereas like with Mikhail, the uh, he has a flask of vodka. <laughs> yeah, or He's whatever. Very Russian. <laughs> And then uh, Steiner is just like this, this, this white dude, this old white dude, and he doesn't. He like smokes, but he doesn't actually light any of his cigarettes. Like yeah. that was the first thing I noticed about him is he's he's putting these cigarettes in his mouth and putting them out, but he's like eight of them in there, and none of them <laughs> are lit. <laughs> yeah, but he's more of the uh, the vet. Yeah, he's the vet, and he's the he's the captain of this team, and their mission is to to retrieve the cargo now. Since they failed to do it in the Arctic. This is like an infiltration mission. They're calling it Operation Rubicon, you know. And what they're going to do is they're going to just pose as um, Earth Federation soldiers who need to get in there. And then... No, a transport company. Or a transport company. Eventually they do uh, act as soldiers. But as a transport company, they're going to secretly move um, Mikhail's robot in so that he can cause a distraction while they go and either capture or destroy the this uh, experimental Gundam that they're working on. Yeah. Bernie is thrust into this major operation very clearly in over his head. Like, you get the feeling that the time that he was out in the Zaku was maybe his first time in combat. Yeah. Or very early on. And uh, Steiner requested a replacement for his, his lost teammate, and he was promised you know, someone worthy to fill that gap and he gets this rookie, so already there, the rest of the team's pretty biased against Bernie. Yeah, there's definitely, like, some animosity there. Meanwhile, Al is doing very poor, he's pulled into the principal's office because his test scores are really bad, and he's either gonna need to have to talk to a counselor or bring his mother in, uh, very clearly both of which he doesn't want, but maybe even more so his mom. Mm -hmm. Uh, He doesn't really care i mean he cares about the consequences he doesn't really care about getting better at his tests he's dreaming of mobile suits and he's like sneaking out of the house to go check out the uh the 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 zaku and uh again he doesn't tell anyone even chris who he's great friends with he's like hey i'm going to go out he doesn't really say it's like a it's a secret mission mm-hmm. but uh he's he's going and he's just he's kind of like falling into the cockpit and it it turns on he's just kind of playing around in this Effectively um, worthless Zaku at this point. Yeah, it is kind of a weird sort of reference to a thing that was pretty common in Gundam, where like the pilots that would eventually become the main characters sort of fall into the cockpits. <laughs> right. And here okay. he's just falling into this piece of junk. Yeah, <laughs> piece of junk. He's like, "Yeah, this is so cool. Look at all the glowing lights." But nothing works. Yeah, thankfully. But we cut back to Bernie, who is. They're preparing for the the actual trans um transporting bit of it by like setting up I don't know if this dude is alive originally, but they shoot him in the head uh to sort of like imply damage from uh driving through this war zone getting to side six. Like there's this elaborate setup to make it seem like he can kind of like pass through without inspections. Yeah, to make it less suspect that he comes in out of nowhere, this big shipment to say he's just avoiding trouble. Right, and uh, while Bernie is missing a document and they, they, the uh, Federation group that's there is about ready to check him out because he's acting kind of shifty after, with this whole, like, you know, 
he doesn't want them to be able to look in and find that this, you know, robot's here. But the rest of the crew is there to bail him out. And very, they seem, they definitely show off as a lot more uh, competent and prepared for this sort of thing. Yeah, it's never entirely stated, but it does kind of feel like they intentionally put him on the spot. Because this, Bernie's a soldier, he's not a spy or anything. He's not trained in subterfuge or, like, form. Really right, there's right. a little bit of, like, a hazing idea there. Yeah. Though maybe a little more, a little less innocent, I guess, yeah. than, than a hazing would be. <laughs> and as far as that can be innocent, I guess. Yeah, so the next day, Al wakes up, and it turns out he fell asleep in the Zaku, and he's really kind of worried about that. He needs to make his way home, then he needs to get to school. But on his way home, he sees Bernie and the rest of the team uh, driving these cargo uh, trucks to wherever they're going to end up putting these. And so he's like, oh, wow, there's Bernie, and I guess some other people. And so he grabs onto the, the last truck, in order to follow along. Yeah. And so he's kind of like riding on the back of this truck as the episode fades out. And you know that nothing good could come out of this. Man, how fast is this kid? Yeah, he also runs and captures a truck. Like, <laughs> I mean, from a, re- like from a red light, sure. But he's still running super fast to catch up. <laughs> it's kind of funny because there's a scene in the uh, third Gundam movie where uh, Amro sees his dad in the colony. Like, he doesn't expect to see him there. Uh, and his dad gets on a bus, and he runs and chases the bus the whole way back to his dad's house. <laughs> Cardio's just so much better in space. <laughs> then we have episode three, and at the end of the rainbow, where um, Al ends up flying from the truck because of, like, a real harsh turn. Yeah. And his first thought in finding that he's gotten cut because he fell into these bushes is, Sweet, I got hurt! Because... <laughs> He ends up using this as a way to get the cops to find these guys. Like, he frames it as if, oh, it was like a hit and run, and I barely jumped out of the way, so I want to find these guys. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that the cops also take the t- are, are going to take the time to investigate the, the delivery and all that. And th- the Cyclops team is about ready to kill this cop. And I think Al sort of recognizes that. <laughs> Well, yeah, he sees them pulling guns from behind their backs, and they sort of all give him glances. So he does have, like, a concept of, like, death and stuff, just like, it's it's still separated from him, the person. Mm-hmm. So he, he stops the cop by saying, like, oh, you know, you don't have to investigate, I was lying this whole time because Bernie is my older brother who was pulled away by divorce, and I just... Because I saw him, I really wanted to be able to see him again. It's been so long, and this whole thing has just been a ruse. And the cop goes, well, okay. He's not happy about it, but, you know, it it all works out. No one has to die. And it turns out Al wants to join the Cyclops team, because Bernie's on it, and he wants to be a soldier. That You know, that's his goal. That's that's what he finds cool. Mm -hmm. And so, there, I don't think they want to do it, but when he's super ready to give away, like, these government secrets and the layout of these hangars and stuff, like, yeah, absolutely, they're gonna uh, exploit this child. <laughs> like, he's he's super ready to just give away all of these details about stuff, and he doesn't know what they're doing. He knows they need to find something in the hangar, and that's kinda it. Yeah. He's like, well, sure, let me tell you all about the hangar and, the, you know, all this other stuff I can find, and this is all for a 
like a special forces badge that he gets yeah. from the team. Uh, but it is revealed that the badge has a listening device in it. Right. So they're using it to bug him in case he tells anyone about it because they are ready to they they have some backup plans. Yeah. And Bernie is uh, sort of tasked with babysitting Al throughout this. Though the fact that he's bugged means that he's probably the one who's set to kill him if he talks. Right, and it and it seems like he's sent out because the the rest of the team maybe doesn't have Bernie's best interests in mind. Yeah. He definitely seems like the most expendable as agreed by on the uh, by the other three. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Al, Al definitely has some grasp of the gravitas of war, but he's he's super enamored with the soldier lifestyle, with the idea of doing cool things. Yeah. He doesn't, like, he feels like his school life is really boring and plain, and this is an adventure for him. Yeah. And so, Bernie, in his bugging, is, like, trying to check out uh, Al's house and everything, and just gets fucking beamed by Chris, who thinks he is a... A peeping Tom. He thinks he's, he's like, a peeping Tom, or, you know, like, a, a home invader, and just, like... Be like with one solid hit, like almost kills the dude. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty weird when like Al interrupts her. She's like, "No, that's my brother," and she just like checks and be like, "Oh, thank God he's alive!" Like, what, were you just <laughs> planning to outright murder this dude? <laughs> Do you believe in like due process? And, the, and it's just like, man, um, Chris is hardcore. <laughs> yeah. And maybe gives you your first impression that, you know, Chris is more capable than you might expect from, like, a female character. But, um, is impressively believes this whole, like, brother thing? Yeah, well, it was kind of impressive how smoothly Bernie passes it off, because, like, he gets invited into Chris's house and they meet Chris's parents. Uh, and, yeah, he just says that, oh yeah, I'm from a, uh, another marriage and Al's mom doesn't know about me, so we want to keep it a secret. Yeah, like, surprisingly, Bernie and Al are kind of quick on their feet, except for the part where Al almost blows his cover, being like, yeah, he's like a, he's a robot pilot, yeah! Well, like, uh, Chris mentions that she's joined the Federal Forces. Right. Uh, they don't really know to what extent, but, like, there's her government job. Yeah, she says it's data collection. Yeah, she does data collection, and then Al says, Bernie's a real soldier. And Bernie quickly writes it off as <laughs> he was discharged and he's part of the reserves, and they assume, oh, yeah, the Federation reserves. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, right, I was one, and he, he saves it pretty well. Yeah. So Al and Bernie then go, and they're, they're doing their mission, they're building um, Mikhail's mobile suit. And Bernie kind of gets this, he, he, he kind of gets into a complex about talking about how, you know, he's one kill away from being an ace. You know, he's a big deal because Al really wants Bernie to pilot the robot because he, he thinks Bernie's the coolest. Yeah, this is called the uh, the Comfort, by the way. It's, this is a Comfort. Yeah, it's a design that's only, it's used as a one-off in this show. Uh, okay. Yeah, and it's kind of set apart from other mobile suits. They don't really go into it in this show, but. Uh, it didn't just like background materials and stuff. It's uh, made for very quick, like, high damage strikes. It's loaded with a ton of weapons. Uh, it just has a short operational time, which is kind of relevant to how it gets used in their form. Right, eventually. And we also learned that Chris's data collection is that she is the test pilot for this experimental Gundam that they're going to send off 
for the new types to use. Like it's specifically built for new types. Humans will not get the most out of it and are like ill-equipped. Like I think they say it's like a 30% connection rate between the pilot and the, uh, the, the, the Gundam. Yeah, Chris only operates. Yeah, Chris only operates this Gundam called the Alex or the NT one for new type one. Uh, she can only operate thirty percent of its possible efficiency, but they're making it for Amuro Ray, who, in the show, by the time he's come back to space near the end of the war, has awakened his new type abilities. So there's a, there's a plot point in the TV series that's kind of glossed over in the movies where he is able to perceive what enemies are doing so far ahead of what they're doing and react so quickly that it is burning out the Gundam's joints, but they come up with a sort of stopgap solution that he ends up using for the rest of the show. Okay. And also, the um, later shows incorporate this technology, but the Alex is sort of shown to be the first mobile suit to incorporate a 360-degree panoramic cockpit instead of really bunched-in one that relies on a few cameras. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, Al and Bernie have been put on a reconnaissance mission, basically to try to find this secret Federation base. Because they're on a neutral colony and the treaty that's going around isn't in effect yet, there can't be any military activity, but they know that this experimental Gundam's here and they're clearly testing it. So, um, Al and Bernie are trying to figure out where it is using Al's, I guess, some of Al's knowledge of kind of what goes on around here, and also just kind of putting this on a wild goose chase to, get, you know, get them away from the rest of the team. Yeah. And Bernie, through this whole thing, just seems super disinterested in the mission, his job, like, being a soldier. Like, Al is so jazzed about being able to do this, and Bernie's like, yeah, whatever, I guess. Like, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't even seem like he really wants to be part of the army at this point. Yeah. But they do end up finding um, the the Federation base, and Al, in sort of a, a moment of lack of clarity, like all his moments, uh, decides that he's going to sneak in to this Federation base through, like, the sewers. Yeah. Well, they used uh, service tunnels to find this place, and they just found the most suspiciously sealed off place they could. Right. And so they, they sneak in, or Al sneaks in, and Bernie follows along to make sure he doesn't get killed or ruin the mission. And they they spend a moment in space where they almost die. <laughs> mm-hmm. But they, they since they found the location of the cargo, they uh, Al wants to go in and kind of like get evidence. So he's he's sneaking through the air vents to to find this, and he finds where they're keeping the Gundam, and he's pointing the camera up. But he has no regards for boundaries or his life because he is videotaping this top secret thing. And soldiers are coming by, and I'm pretty sure only bad things could happen for him if he's caught. Yeah. But at the start of episode four, Over the River and Through the Woods, we see that, well, that, that doesn't happen. He's, he is able to hide very quickly from these soldiers because they are, they're not looking for him. They're not looking yeah. for someone, so they're not really paying full attention, and it's, it's fine. You get a sense that these, the Federation soldiers do feel like they're pretty far from conflict. Mm-hmm. Like, there was the Xeon attack, but it was a one-off, and, you know, they've got it. Yeah, and we learn that the Cyclops team is getting tips from an insider for the Xeons who's living there named Charlie, his bartender. And he's kind of just giving them information on kind of what's going on, any kind of, like, 
he, he seems to have an, an amount of confidential information as well that he can access and give to these people to, to help them on their mission. Yeah. Uh, over this whole bit, Al and Bernie seem to be getting along more. Like, Bernie's kind of no-nonsense, but he's he's kind of letting himself... He's, he's kind of putting down his, his defenses. Yeah, because uh, he sees what Al took photos of, and he recognizes the Gundam. Because it has, even though it's a different one, it has the same facial design and the iconic V fin on the head. Yeah, and Al is still, like, presenting this all as fun, and Bernie's kind of getting caught up in it. Yeah. The team kind of hates Bernie over this, but they're happy that the info's there, because he knows that this is dangerous, just like Bernie knew it was dangerous, but Al is kind of a shithead. Uh, (laughs) But through this whole thing, there's, like, a nice bit of Al, like has really felt like he's made friends with these soldiers because he has, like, a notebook where he's drawing them, and he draws mm-hmm. Bernie, like, holding hands with him. Like, it's it's this very, like, almost sweet thing until you realize that he's working for the enemy and he's giving away all these government secrets. Um, mm-hmm. But it's still, like, it's still sweet and kind of builds this relationship, especially with Al and Bernie. And at the same time, Bernie and Chris are kind of chatting up more. Um, they're, you know, they're they're kind of becoming friends. Seems like maybe maybe they're into each other. Yeah. But whatever. It's close to Christmas. <laughs> and uh, because of all the information that Al has gathered for them, the, the team is like placing charges in places and they're getting ready for their mission. And Al at school is found openly talking about how cool the Xeon, the Xeon army yeah. is and how cool Zaku's are. And his friends aren't, like, really dismissive of him, but they're, they're willing to bite back a bit. Like, you know, the Xeons are the enemies, right? But he he always is like, wait, there, there's no way. They're super cool. The Zaku's are awesome compared to the GMs. And, you know, one of his friends is like, well, you know, mom watches the news and, you know, and says that the Xeons are the bad guys who broke away from Earth. And basically his retort is, oh, so you listen to everything your mom says? Mm-hmm. It's like <laughs> it's a really typical shitty kid. Yeah, it, it, there's, there's, a, there's an amount of the writing here that really kind of gets, like, these young idiot kids who don't really understand the complexities of all this. Yeah, though this is also when one of his friends mentions that whatever the Xeon have, it can't possibly match up to the Gundam. Right, and then uh, a very important line, What's a Gundam? Because he doesn't know. And I'm, not a lot of other people know, but it it is proof that the, the little girl from before was correct. They do have a mobile suit. Mm-hmm. And uh, Al's not convinced. Al thinks the Gundam's probably stupid. Because <laughs> it's, it's not cool, like his cool Xeon friends. Yeah. The, the idea also, because the kid says that it's killed a hundred Zakus at least... And the thing is, that right. is actually true, but... But that like, also sounds ridiculous. Yeah, it sounds absurd that something could be that powerful. Right, like one robot that can take out a hundred others. And then meanwhile, we have Steiner meeting up with the, the informant, Charlie, and they're talking about kind of how the, the higher-ups for this mission don't really seem concerned with the, the people on the Cyclops team, just that they're able to locate and then either capture or destroy the Gundam. Like, they don't they don't seem particularly concerned with the aftermath. Yeah. Almost like this is like a suicide mission. Mm-hmm. And 
uh, Steiner kind of has a moment where he talks about how it also seems like this is the end of the war. Like, um, the war is coming to an end. The, the Zeons are losing. But until that treaty is signed, they're going to, they're going to continue their mission. Because that's their job. That's what they do as soldiers. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's not the first time, even in the original show, there are a lot of moments near the end where a lot of pilots have said, yeah, we're not going to win. Like, the momentum is too strong against us. Right, like, what do you do? Give up? And then you're going to die. You might, might as well go out dying like a man. Or whatever. <laughs> but um, the explosives that they set up earlier in the episode are for an escape route. They're going to just blast through the side so that they can go into space straight from where they are. They don't have to make it to the end of the side, the, uh, the, the colony. And yeah, so this is where we learn explicitly that it, if they can't steal the Gundam, they're going to blow it up. And that's going to be even more trouble. Yeah. And we see maybe a moment of, of empathy between Bernie and one of the other characters in the team. It's like the first time that they kind of treat him with even joking respect. Like, uh, Garcia's there, and he seems pretty down about this mission, too. But he's like, hey, Bernie, I need you to stay alive. Yeah. Not for any, like, sympathetic reasons, but because I need someone that I outrank here. And you get, like, a little bit of personability between the two of them. Like, maybe he is starting to fit in a little more. Yeah. And especially with Garcia, because... It's not just, you know, I outrank you, but he feels that since he does, it's his responsibility if Bernie dies. Right. And so the, the mission is going to happen the day after this. And Al has also gotten a tour of the base tomorrow where he hopes to kind of do more work for the, the Xeon soldiers. Bernie tries to call him and tell him to stop, but Al is not going to have any of it and he's going to do his dang job or what he thinks is his job. This bit what I actually was kind of frustrated with, because Bernie could just as easily say, it's going to blow up tomorrow, <laughs> but instead he just says, no. Yeah, it's just like, don't go there. And it's like, why not? Just because you can't. But I think if they said what the mission was, they're pretty sure Al would turn on them. Or at least that's, yeah. what, that's what they're thinking. Because I think, because to, to some degree, Al does understand, like, the, you know, the whole conflict. Mm-hmm. But still, uh, that doesn't work out. Uh, Al's going anyways. Um, fuck you, Bernie. And we also see kind of the first time that Steiner actually smokes one of his cigarettes mm-hmm. as he's talking to Mikhail, and Mikhail's like filling up his um, he's filling up his flask uh, for the mission, and they both seem pretty prepared for this to be their their like their death. They're ready to die. Yeah, on this uh- mission. Yeah, Mikhail's toast is to those of us who are about to die. Yeah, and it's it definitely comes off as like they're they still expect to have the mission go through, but they're also ready to just lose it. Yeah, because all the factors are against them. This operation wasn't really given a whole wide berth for them to survive. Yeah, they've got four people there to fight off an entire base, and again, it does seem like the situation is that. They're, they were sent here to die by yeah. the by the Zeons. And of their team, uh, Garcia, Bernie, and Steiner are going incognito as Federation soldiers. And Mikhail's the one mobile suit pilot who's going to be making a distraction for them. Right, he's taking his comfort and he's just going to wreck however much he can, making his way 
to the uh to the base. And then worse comes to worse, he's gonna have to fight, but he's he's just there to start some destruction and make some chaos. Yeah. So when the mission is a go, this comfort pops up and the Federation's called, they're gonna send in people to to kind of try to fight back against it. But it's clearly already started this huge destruction. Um, meanwhile, Al is getting his sweet tour of the military center, and the the leader there tells him that, well, he's like, oh man, you know, these robots are cool, right? Like, mobile suits are great, they're awesome. And very clearly, the, the, the head doesn't agree, and he, he says that Gundams are a necessary evil, and that they're not built to bring about happiness. Yeah. Which goes straight over Al's head as um, a bunch of explosions start happening, because it gives him the distraction he needs to steal an access card and go down to where the Gundam is. Yeah. The infiltration mission starts and Bernie uh, fucks up. He fucks up Australian seasons. Yeah, he says he's from Sydney and that the snow would be falling around this time. But uh, no, that's not December until Sydney. Yeah, and so while it's fine to start because like this guy's like, oh, you're from Sydney. I know someone from Sydney. Uh, the guy pops up and is like, wait a minute, that's not right. And so a, a gunfight starts right where the, the, the Gundam is, like in that room. Yeah. And there's all this fighting animation is a lot more fluid than the motion before. Like you get the idea that maybe there's some sort of like rotoscoping or like use of uh, footage to be able to make this seem a lot more real. Yeah. And it's also a lot bloodier. Yeah. Al runs in, he's he's doing whatever. But uh Steiner gets shot. Um Garcia also gets hit and tries to take a landmine and kind of suicide bomb on the Gundam, but is shot too far away to do any damage. Yeah. So he blows himself up anyway. <laughs> right, he blows him he blows himself anyway in the hopes of maybe getting something and Al is just fucked. Um <laughs> the, the wall that he's using to like look in on this just gets destroyed and he's covered in rubble and like uh and it's just it looks bad for him yeah but ultimately uh this explosion ends up being an escape route for the shot steiner and bernie who's dragging him along to try to keep him from death but the chris makes it to the gundam pilots it and ultimately ends up killing mikhail in his uh confer in a battle yeah and also, Chris enters the hangar just as Bernie and Steiner are leaving. So, and there's smoke everywhere, so no one sees a thing. So, Chris and Bernie don't realize that they're fighting for opposite sides right now. Mm-hmm. And um, the explosions were still set to go off for their escape route, so those still explode. Lots of damage is done. And Al makes it out of the rubble, fine. But this is the first time that he's faced with the truth about what Bernie and he and the Cyclops team had done, because when he gets out, he finds Bernie and Steiner next to a car and Bernie looks ready to shoot Al in order to get out safe. Yeah. And this is, there's a wall separating this scene and the scene of Chris having killed Mikhail. Yeah. Uh So again, we don't get to see the other sides. They don't know what happened there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, Steiner, as he's uh, dying, asks Bernie uh, what happened. And Bernie says, oh, yeah, Mikhail destroyed the, the mobile suit. 
And Steiner sees right through and says he's a terrible liar before he dies. <laughs> and that's how he dies. Yeah. And uh, Mikhail actually seems like he's destroyed the Gundam, because it has these big, gray, like, chunky armor parts on it. Mm-hmm. And he, he wraps a, a sort of whip made of mines around it, and it blows up. It creates a huge explosion, the type of thing that probably would have destroyed the original Gundam if it had been hit with something like mm-hmm. that. But after the dust clears... All the armor parts just sort of fall off the Gundam, and it it pops out these uh, wrist-mounted Gatling guns, and yeah. it sh- like just absolutely annihilates the count the coffer. Is it really and, brutal? And Mikhail, which gets hit, yeah, it's super brutal. They don't even show him getting hit in the cockpit, but they show the cockpit, and it's not good. Yeah, once the firing is done, you see just like how many holes are in the thing. Yeah, and so Steiner's death opens episode 5, Say It Ain't So Bernie, and we also get to see some Xeon work in the background. Um, Commander Killing is there. (laughs) Commander Killing! (laughs) Oh god. Uh, Shows up and kills the the person in charge of that particular, like, Xeon base. Yeah, that's the uh, moon base uh, Granada. Which is okay. actually eventually between the Federation and Zeon will be signed. Oh, weird. So, um, he kills the, the leader there, and his idea is that since this mission failed, and they've gotten word of that, they're going to just nuke the hell out of Side 6. Yeah, by Christmas. Well, on Christmas Day. On Chris- like, I, I think it's the midnight after Christmas, they are going to just annihilate the side because that's the only way they can think of to get rid of this Gundam. Yeah, and uh, nuclear weapons are seen as a big taboo in the Gundam world like for multiple reasons, but uh, they're specifically banned under something called the Antarctic Treaty, but Commander Killing mentions that since Side 6 is a neutral colony, they didn't sign the Antarctic Treaty, so that's all it takes for him to be okay with nuking the civilian population. Right, and that's the other, that's also the treaty that says that they can't have military activity on this base, which is, you know, the issue with having the Gundam there at all. Mm-hmm. But um, we end up seeing that there's an investigation into the attack, since, you know, Xeon soldiers got away. There's talk of a possible inside job, given how well these, these soldiers seem to be able to infiltrate. And Chris is suspected of doing it, uh, basically, to, like, propel her career, because she got to, you know, fly, you know, she got to be in the Gundam and kill the, yeah. the enemies. Yeah, he's also pretty sexist. <laughs> Which is fucked up. That detective is bad. Um, yeah, it's 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 a real bad time, and Chris is having none of it. Chris is just like, no comment, walks out, mm-hmm. don't give a shit. But so Al is alive. He, he didn't get shot by Bernie. Um, and he seems pretty shaken up. A li- he, well, not pretty shaken up. He seems a little shaken up, because he does see in a, a house collapse like, them pulling a, a child out of there. Yeah. I think he maybe starts understanding that, you know, what they did is wrong and the consequences of it. Uh, Bernie's planning to escape. He talks to the, the bartender and gets a passport and a warning about the, the nuclear attack. Yeah, and the informant says that he's not going to leave because he's actually lived his whole life on Side 6. Right, he has a connection to it, so he doesn't want to leave. Yeah, which does also set apart the idea, because you don't really see this that often in Gundam, where 
so even though he's working for the enemy and what he does has these horrible consequences, he still views it as his home, not side three or any other Zeon territory. Right. And Al meets up with Bernie, which he should stop doing at this point, um, <laughs> honestly. And Al is like defeating him at McDonald's. <laughs> and, and Al is like shook up by seeing this death. And he, he, the, the quote I think is, people die really easily, huh? <laughs> and Bernie um, is not very sympathetic for it, probably because of how uh, bungled this mission ended up. And he talks about how it's inevitable in war. This is the sort of thing that you. You learn to kind of, you know, deal with because it happens so often. Yeah, he says it doesn't matter if you're a decorated captain or some kid. Once your luck runs out, you're dead, and that's all there is to it. And earlier he says something like, dying in space is the worst. Mm-hmm. And he, I think he kind of gets it. But Al is still about this mission for some reason. He's still way into the idea of taking down this mobile suit. He doesn't know that this nuclear launch is happening. He just knows that... They got to still do this mission because he thinks Bernie's the greatest and Bernie's going to be able to take down the Gundam if if they can repair his Zaku. And it gets Bernie to admit that he's never shot down a mobile suit. He's super like amateurish when it comes to this whole war thing. He admits that he bugged Al, that this whole thing's been a ruse, that this whole friendship and everything has been all faked for the sake of the mission. And... The only thing Al really has to say about this is basically like, I hate you, Bernie. Why won't you die like a man? Um, <laughs> like, even if you die piloting this, why aren't you out doing your mission? Why are you running away? Because Bernie also admits that he's leaving. Yeah. And that's when he tells Al about the, the nuke, right? Yeah. Then he's like, hey, Al, you should leave too. Uh, there is a nuclear attack that's going to happen and kill everyone here. Take your mom. Go. Yeah. He's also asked about Chris at this point, but it's kind of left his thoughts at this juncture. Right. Um, Al decides he's going to go to the police, um, kind of understanding his part in this. Like, he, he like um, he's thinking that if he goes to the police, they'll be able to do something. But Bernie points out that, hey, you're a part of this. They're going to also, like, kill you for treason. He's not really into that. Mm-hmm. So it takes him a bit. But he stops at the arcade on the way to wherever he's going. I think home at that point. School's probably canceled. I think the school got destroyed. <laughs> yes, yeah, the school got definitely got the destroyed. Battle. Yeah. So um, he shows up at an arcade on the way, and he's checking out a mech game like the one he has at home. And he sort of has these visions of Side 6 being destroyed. And suddenly it like really shakes him understanding the implications of of what happened like this is the first time we see him sort of like scared about the mechs yeah and he suddenly becomes very paranoid about the cops because a cop comes up he's like hey aren't you supposed to be in school and he just panics and runs Mm -hmm. and on his way home he he meets up with chris and al kind of talks to chris about why they're fighting and kind of what they're going through and Chris's perspective on the war and everything and dying is sort of like Chris has something to protect on this colony. So she's going to fight and everybody has to decide for themselves what choice to make. There's no right or wrong thing to do. Yeah. And this comes up because Al wonders 
if it's okay to run away sometimes. And Chris says, yes, some people, they're going to run away. And that's okay. That's their decision to make because this is a serious thing. But if you have something to fight for, you're going to fight for it. But no choice is technically correct one over the other. Yeah. So after this, uh, we see Bernie... Uh, going off for a tropical vacation. Um, he's he's figured out where he's gonna go, and he's he's at the airport ready to leave. Yeah, he's he's just says he wants to go anywhere. The guy at the ticket counter says anywhere during wartime. <laughs> and it's like, so, and then he's looking around. He sees an ad, and he's like, "Uh, there." And it looks like basically like Space Hawaii. Yeah, it's a place called like Francesca. The ad's like a super buff dude in a speedo with two ladies in his arm. Yep, on, on like a on a nice like uh, island, uh, in, you know, in the ocean. It's great, a nice tropical island. Mm-hmm. Uh, Al goes by the school to see the damage, and Al's friends are there, and one of them has picked up the bullet casings from the confer, and one of them I think has a missile. He has like <laughs> a huge chunk of something in his bag. I think, yeah, I can't remember actually what it was. And it, it looks like he's pulling out a missile. It's really weird. Yeah, but Al the, is, um, some okay. of the, the automatic weapons that mobile suits use have huge shell casings. So. Right, it might be one of those. Yeah, there's a bit in um, in Gundam F91, actually, where during the big mobile suit battle at the beginning, one of the uh, later iterations of the GM, it's just firing its like head-mounted machine guns, which are pretty weak as far as Gundam weapons are concerned. But mm-hmm. one of the casings just, like, hits a woman on the head and she dies. Jesus. Um, Al is super uncomfortable with his friends talking about how great it is that they found these weapons. And I think, it again, he realizes how much of all this destruction is his fault. Mm-hmm. But he laughs to kind of save face with his friends who are super into it. But uh, he, yeah. he decides, well... First, we again go to the Zeons, and we see that Commander Killing is talking to Captain Von Helsing <laughs> about dropping the nukes, and they're talking about the mission, and Von Helsing doesn't like it, but he's doing it, it's his job, and they're ready for the nuclear attack. Um, meanwhile, Al decides that he needs to tell the police uh, what's up. Maybe they can stop the nuclear attack. But the cops don't believe him. Boy, who cried wolf. You know, he lied. he lied before. And Al is untrustworthy. Then we see Bernie at the airport. Bernie is next to this girl who is just getting hammered at the airport bar. And she looks like Chris. Yeah, I actually thought I put in my notes that it was Chris um, (laughs) to start, but it's not. But he he thinks it's Chris to start, which maybe was my confusion. But it's definitely not. This girl uh, gets on the phone and, like, super drunkenly and loud is talking to her, I guess, boyfriend who's been cheating on her with someone else. And kind of, you know, that that sort of, like, cinematic sort of, like, yelling at him, but also recognizing that she still loves him and doesn't want to leave for this tropical paradise because she wants to be with this guy, even though he's... You know, he's he's got all this infidelity and these other issues. Yeah, and she also mentions that Francesca's, like, a horrible colony <laughs> to go yeah, to. Yeah, he's like, oh, this place sucks, I don't want a vacation here. Yeah. Also kind of interesting to me, at least, is uh, 
The way Bernie is dressed is sort of like how Char is dressed when he's incognito, the original Gundam, or like just off-duty, but like worse. <laughs> he's got some sick glasses. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of a... I guess this is kind of a tangent, but uh, in like the Captain America movies, when he's incognito, he's got this whole like baseball cap, shades, jacket look. And then <laughs> yeah. on Jessica Jones is like this other super soldier type character who's a real shitbag. And he has, like, a shittier version of that incognito outfit. <laughs> awesome. Reminds me of that. But, uh, this makes Bernie realize that he still cares about that dumb idiot kid that he hung out with. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't want Al to die. Yeah, or Chris, even though he doesn't know about it. Well, also Chris. Yeah, well, both of them. He just happens to talk to Al. Yeah. And it's great. Uh, Al finds out, um, after getting kicked out of the police head, that his parents have made up. Uh, dad's gonna stop going on these travels, and he's going to stay at the home with everyone, and they're gonna have a full family again, just in time for the nuclear attack. And Al is noticeably upset, but he can't say why, so his mom's like, what, you aren't happy that our family's gonna be back together, and probably we're gonna have a better dynamic? And Yeah, Al can't talk about it, but he gets a call from Bernie, and they both apologize to each other about the things that they've said to each other and kind of the way that they've treated each other in their moments of anger. And Bernie comes to this realization that he doesn't have anything else, so he might as well fight for Al and Chris and these connections that he's made on this colony, because he doesn't have anything left in Xeon. He's not going to come back a hero or anything. And so uh, instead of like trying to stop the nuclear attack, they're going to try to kill the Gundams that Somehow, in the span of several hours, Commander Killing's gonna pull, you know, pull back on the nuclear thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that. we end up in the final episode. Episode 6, War in the Pocket. And we get a great um, montage of <laughs> them, like, stealing shit to be able to rebuild their, the Zaku. Yeah, uh, Mikhail left some, like, weapon containers around, like, assuming that he would pilot the comfort for longer and just like fly by and grab these things to reload but he died before he could get any right so they're collecting them from all these places and so they they make it onto this military base and um they're not supposed to be parked there so some soldiers get confused as like bernie's trying to get these these weapons out of here and al decides to help by just taking a crowbar to a car <laughs> yeah and just destroying it and this real twisted sense of justice between Bernie and Al about this whole thing. But, like, it's it's this montage of them kind of bonding as they rebuild this death machine. Um, yeah, and uh, they they want to be able to set an effective trap for the gun. Because there's no way even a fully functioning Zaku would win in a stand-up fight against a only slightly damaged gun. Right, so they're buying, like, big uh, Christmas balloons and stuff like that to try to help out. Yeah, and they get some uh, grenades from the stock of Mikhail stuff they were able to get. Yeah, and Bernie has this backup plan for Al in case something goes wrong. But, you know, he's pretty sure it's going to go right. Yeah. And Al is pretty sure it's going to go right. And I think this is maybe one of my favorite things about this show mm-hmm. is Al goes to meet with his parents. You know, he, he thinks everything's going to be fine. The mission's going to go on. And when he meets up with his dad and his mom's there and they're talking about, because of the situation, uh, 
uh, Al's dad is like, oh, so I hear that the feds stopped some some Zeons, uh, some Zeon uh, ships that were trying to come in. Apparently they had yeah. nukes on them. And so <laughs> the the entire point of what they're doing for the mission has been taken care of off screen. We don't get to see it. Presumably, like Commander Killing and all that are going to be killed, you know, for trying to bring this nuclear war here. But like, Bernie's now going to go die for nothing. Um, this this mission means nothing now. Yeah. And uh, Al realizes that, and he's horrified. Like, more horrified about the fact that Bernie's going to die than, oh, hooray, we're not going to die of a nuclear war. But mm-hmm. fair enough. You know, priorities. But Al decides to endanger himself to try and stop the fight between Chris and Bernie. He kind He's kind of running along the path that, that Bernie would take. And there's a, a quick battle, kind of like a, a long range battle before Bernie sort of like takes part in this whole like, you know, the, the, the trap that he's set up with all yeah. these balloons and stuff. He, he lures the, the Alex Gundam out into the woodlands because no one lives there. Right. So that's an important thing on Bernie's side is he's making sure no one gets hurt. But also it's a disadvantage for the Gundam. Yeah. And initially, uh, Chris's commanding officer tells her not to pursue, but she also realizes there's no civilians living in the woodland, so I'm going to pursue it. So they actually share a very similar morality on this. Right, which is, hey, we're not going to kill other people. And there's a, a big battle, and, I mean, the, the traps do work against Chris. Chris ends up wasting some ammo on these balloons and stuff and kind of falling into that heat grenade trap. It, but uh, it, ultimately, they're having this, this battle... And by the end, it ends up that it turns out Al makes it there just in time to see the the final blow. And although Bernie is pretty confident, like the the heat axe would be able to cut through the Gundam, uh, Chris gets a much better shot, and the that Zaku just fucking explodes. Yeah, it's a. Uh, I guess it's not really mentioned, but. Well, the, the cockpits for the mobile suits are in the chest, uh, but Bernie ends up going for trying to cut the Gundam's head off to just cause critical damage, and uh, Chris stabs right through the cockpit. Right. And that, I mean, that it extremely kills Bernie. <laughs> they, yeah. they later refer to him as looking like hamburger. It's, it's brutal. And mm-hmm. uh, the Gundam is not in good shape either, but uh, Chris makes it out with uh, minimal damages. I think yeah, a broken, broken arm. arm. Yeah. But um, Chris makes it out alive. Bernie is extremely dead. And Al is in shock. Not only because Bernie died, but realizing that this entire time they've been fighting against Chris. Like the one other person that he could confide in before Bernie showed up. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is devastating to him. Yeah, a Federation soldier comes and finds him, and he is unresponsive. Yeah. And then we see the videotape that Bernie left with Al at this point. And Bernie had prepped this two videos, one to tell Al what's going to happen if he dies. And the other one is just a bunch of evidence about what their team did there, and he had a confession. Um basically meant so that in case he died in this mission, he could take this to the police and the police might actually listen to it and, you know, accept it as evidence and go and do something about the nuclear attack. Yeah. 
Um, Bernie says that he didn't end up doing this out of a real sense of obligation to anyone, but that his, his own personal values ended up coming to think that running away is the easy way out. And ultimately, he kind of wanted to fight. He wanted the chance to prove himself as a soldier. He still has a connection to his soldier um, status. And he yeah. war- he kind of warns Al at the end, like, don't hate anyone who was part of this war. This war is hell, and on both sides, these these groups are only doing what they thought was right. And he compares it to what they did. They thought that this was the right thing to do. It may not have been, you know, they, they might have been misguided in sort of like trying to still destroy the Gundam with the Zaku, but they still thought it was right in the end. It was their their personal beliefs. And he says that war is a set of conflicting ideals. Sometimes it's not possible to say, ultimately, who's right or wrong. Yeah, and he says that if he escapes, he'll come back to the colony someday uh, and meet with Al again. Right. I kind of wish that it ended on him saying that's a promise. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been good. But Al is... Sort of living life normally, like, he's he's still, you know, he's still able to function. He wears Bernie's badge in remembrance of him, and it turns out Chris has been transferred back to Earth. And she's she made it out with just a, a broken arm. Yeah, also, Al's, uh, Al's dad also says, asks his mom if he seems like he's matured a lot because he's, because he's so quiet these days. Yeah. And Chris asks um, Al to tell Bernie hi, or goodbye, I guess, um, since she's leaving. And he doesn't have the heart to to tell her what happened. So he's just like, okay. And then he makes it to school. They're doing classes outside because the school is still ruined. The, the treaty has been signed. Peace has returned to the universe for now. Al's friends do not give a shit about this at all as they're getting told about this. But Al gets really caught up in the emotion of losing Bernie in this war and realizing that it, you know, this this whole conflict's over and it's, you know, there's no way to get all of that back. Yeah. His his friends assume that he's crying because the war is over and that means there's not going to be cool fights anymore. And they're like, don't worry, next time we might even get live bullets, you know, from a battle. <laughs> and through the whole thing, he's crying. And I think in some ways, the the little girl from before that was really bratty kind of maybe understands a little bit of what's going on with Al. Maybe not to the degree, but, you know, that clearly something is wrong. And that's that's the that's the ending of it. The, the war is over and nothing has really changed. Yeah. Though the uh, the music it plays as it like sort of zooms out of the colony and stuff is weirdly cheerful. Yeah, it is weirdly cheerful. It's the same ending song they've been using, but it's it's definitely like it's it's definitely like weird to put this sort of like upbeat. I mean, it's it's it, it, this is you know it's a it's a thing that's used in all kinds of shows. Like Evangelion does it with uh, Comsos or Todd. But mm-hmm. like it's it's just really weird, and especially for what this series has been saying, for it to be so upbeat. Yeah, and that's Gundam Double O Eighty. 
Uh, it took a bit longer on that one. I felt like with six episodes, we could get a little more into the details because, like, the details are sort of the series for this, like, or for the, the they're the show. This show doesn't have huge set pieces, as it were. Yeah. Like, it has two big moments, but just paring it down to sort of the buildup and release of those things doesn't give way to, I think, what's the most important part of this series, which is the characterization and how all of these characters grow and develop and the, you know, their, their opinions about everything changes as it goes. And they learn about these, these different people and these characters. Yeah, it's definitely also, I mean, for this, I know you didn't end up watching the, uh, the original animated series or movie trilogy or anything, but this is one that really doesn't concern itself too much with telling you about the world. It, it doesn't build the world in any real significant way, because you get the sense that there are probably special forces teams and secret federation prototypes happening all the time. Like, I think with all the side material, there's probably like five to six Gundams active simultaneously during the one year war. God. It gets kind of out of control. Especially the side story where there's a unit with two Gundams in it. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, it's just, I think it's just two Gundams. I, or, and maybe some other extra mobile suits, but yeah, it's, what was it, Space to the End of a Flash, or, uh, and it's in a game that's called, like, uh, the Thoroughbred Story Mode, because that's the name of the ship. But it's, yeah, it's absurd. It's like, here's the Gundam with a giant Gatling gun, and here's the other one with a giant beam cannon. <laughs> great but uh it's a very small personal story and i guess that's a little bit of war in the pocket it's this it's this very tiny contained story about the people of the war instead of the war itself yeah and one of the eye catches has you know a sort of different it's sort of a play on the term war in the pocket but it shows like a pocket overstuffed with like toy bombs and stuff like that because they all have toys of these mobile suits and it's it's kind of weird to think of on one hand, you know, because most people experience Gundam through the lens of the people fighting the war. It's the most horrible thing. How could they possibly make toys of it? But then this reflected, it just sort of referenced the very real phenomenon of people buying, like, model F-16s and stuff. Like, these are things that are used in war to kill people. Yeah, and, like, army men and stuff. It just happens that the the anime ones are cooler than the ones in real life. <laughs> so it's e it's even a bigger issue, maybe. But yeah, um, it's this is a lot more about who the war affects more than what the war is about. And in a, a wider sense, that a war can get so big that can it can almost be about nothing to the soldiers who are fighting. Right, and it, I mean, it is for a lot of these people. Yeah, but we also we also get to see the other perspective with like Steiner and stuff who like they know that the war is going to hell, but they have a mission to do, and they have a loyalty to Zeon to do it. Yeah. They know they're gonna die, but, like, they're gonna go out swinging. That's what they were made to do. Yeah, for a lot of them, they don't really imagine life past the war. Yeah, like, they they, they seem pretty they seem pretty prepared to die. <laughs> they don't even see like, past this mission. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a very interesting series. I think it's time for us to maybe talk about the bigger themes that we saw. So the first one is one that um, 
I guess it's sort of the, the, the ultimate discussion of this show, and that is, is there a right in this conflict? Because it's, I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. Like, everyone thinks that they're right. You know, the, the Xeons are trying to create their own uh, life outside of Earth. Earth is trying to stop them because they've got these weapons that are going to be able to take down Earth. And in this tiny, tiny battle, Al thinks it's right to work with the coolest guy. And, you know, everyone else has their own <laughs> mission and goal to go with. It, yeah. Like, is anyone wrong in this? Yeah. It expands outwards from the original series, too, because while the Zeon have a pretty justified view of wanting independence, they sort of make it... They definitively push over, you know, if you're on the fence, like, they push over your viewpoint by having the leader of the Zeon, Kieran, pretty much be space Hitler. (laughs) To the point that his own father directly compares him to Hitler in the show. And, yeah, the whole thing becomes... Because new types are seen as a sort of hope for the future, these people with improved empathy and perception, uh, greater perception. But once Giran talks about them, in private conversations he says they're convenient as a concept to discuss, but the way he talks about them are like the ubermensch, the, the superior race. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, like, I mean, times we live in, I, there are some people who think that's still super dope, but... <laughs> At the time, that was pretty much, you know, a death knell for empathizing with their cause. But this pushes it to a smaller scale again, where you can say, you know, I don't want the Zeon to win, but I want maybe the Zeon to win. Maybe I want them to survive. Maybe they don't deserve it. Yeah, but like these soldiers are fighting for something a lot more personal. Like you have, you have in some ways the, uh, the, the, these look for revenge for their, their dead partner in the Cyclops team. And, you know, that, that becomes this whole different thing. They're still doing a mission for Zeon. They know Zeon's going to lose. And they've, they've come to terms with that. But that's, you know, that's their job. That's what they want to do. And they still want to honor their lost friend. And you have Bernie, who has nothing to fight for. And that's why he's got this, like, apathetic and really shitty worldview throughout most of it. Until he, he kind of realizes that he's made connections with these people on the opposite side who mean a lot to him and have, you know, kind of expanded his his view of the world. Yeah. I'm going to say that Al was in fact wrong in some of the actions that he made. <laughs> I think that's I think that's an undeniable there what the the right would have been not to sell the government secrets but also this is from the viewpoint of a child who just doesn't understand and I think that's an important thing to do is give the perspective of a show like this, where you're going to really discuss the humanity of uh, the other side of a war, you need to give it to a neutral, um, a neutral viewpoint. Yeah, and even with the Federation, like they don't, they don't do a lot to make you really feel for Chris as much as the other characters in the show. But the funny thing about it, when you consider the wider implication of this brand new cutting-edge Gundam that, you know, is going to be made specially for Amuro Ray. He never gets the thing. You know that he never gets this thing. <laughs> this whole conflict's fought over this completely useless bauble in this war that, is, that serves no purpose. Right, the war is over. Um, 
by the end of this, like they weren't going to get the Gundam to him in the time after the treaty, like by the time the treaty was going to be written. But they also kind of didn't know that the it was going to happen. Yeah, the treaty because I mean you know this war's been going on for a year. But yeah, it's it 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 gives an interesting perspective by putting it in the view of someone who's just like, well, these guys are cool. And therefore, I want to work with them. Like, it's, it, it is ignoring all of the moral stuff. He doesn't know anything about, you know, the whole, like, Hitler thing. He doesn't know about space Nazis. And he doesn't know mm-hmm. about sort of the, the, the resistance. He just knows that the Zeons are cooler and he has an in. Yeah. And for a lot of people, you can imagine, like, I remember when I was a kid, I thought it would be super cool to be a spy. Did I ever consider, like, <laughs> I'm going to have to kill someone or my actions will lead to people being killed? You know, destabilizing a country that probably, you know, 99.9% of the time shouldn't be destabilized. Like, something like that. That's a pretty awful thing to do. But all you think as a kid is it would be really cool to be a spy. Yeah, and you play, like, war games and you're like, oh, I killed you with my real gun. And, and mm-hmm. you know, like, that's fun because, you know what? No one died. But then you think about it, oh, yeah, you're going to have to actually kill real people, you know, when you go to this thing. It's, it, it is about um, sort of the discovery of the actual horrors of the conflict. And, I mean, it's, it, I think it does a good job of saying, like, you're, whatever you think is right is what you're going to fight for. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're wrong. It means that you hold a different set of core values. I mean, like, yes, we can say that the the things that, like, Kieran did, were, do, did, um, are wrong in the way that he went about them, but, like, the, the, the mission itself is not necessarily incorrect. Like, their goal of independence is not something that is, like, inherently bad. Yeah, I mean, the fact that the Earth government's rule is unjust uh, is honestly the main driving plot point of Zeta Gundam where the villains are an extension of the Federation. And like, uh, I think as far as I understand, this is like the first time that that's really been explored is like, hey, you know, maybe the Xeon aren't so wrong. Yeah. And, and, and again, on that personal level, they just, you, you kind of, it's easy to sort of cheer on the, uh, the cool mobile suit battles where a ton of guys get, you know, blown up really hardcore and it's like, yeah, that looked awesome. But, you know, Bernie is a rookie. Like, he could be any one of those pilots. They could be just as sympathetic and as full of a person. Right. Because, yeah, Bernie is just like an everyman. He's not a great soldier. He's not like a military captain. He's just like a dude who can't shoot mm-hmm. down a, a GM. Yeah. Also, I said earlier, 99.9% of the time, countries should be destabilized. I don't really know what the 0.1% uh, <laughs> exception I was thinking of was, where it but, was really good that a country got destabilized. But we could imagine a situation where it's okay. Look, there I mean, uh, there are exceptions to everything. Uh, we're, we're not going to get into that. Transylvania. <laughs> look, look, Transylvania needs to be taken down. <laughs> Dracula is hell. But um, you you brought up an interesting thing about how cool the fights are, and it brings me into something I want to talk about, which is the, the the final fight between Chris and Bernie. That fight sucks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's extremely messy. <laughs> like we talked about it early before. Like, 
there's no like gravitas to like the arctic base thing everyone dies kind of like a person nothing is like exploding in cool ways yeah and there's no there's no arc to it where they're like now we're gonna release the secret weapon or something it's it's like well we got more gms (laughs) yeah and so like and then in the final fight it's even more of that like it's it's a one-on-one fight that lasts a surprisingly long amount of time where like the the main of the conflict is like oh she shot some balloons oh they missed Oh, they're both going out at each other at the same time, and they get one good hit on each other, and there's, like, one big explosion. But, like, that fight sucks. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's I think that's another thing that goes along with the themes of this is how shitty war actually is. Because, like, yeah. th- there's that Gundam meme, right? We all know it. Um, it's that picture of a Gundam shooting a gun that, that says war is bad. Um, and it's going over the head of someone who just says, wow, cool robot. <laughs> but, like, that's sort of, like, I, I get that because the thing is, they, they, they glorify the battle because that's what battle shows do. Shows about fighting want to make the fighting look cool because they want people to be engaged in it. Especially if they're long running. Yeah, I can't remember who this quote is from, but it was uh, saying there can't be an anti-war piece of entertainment media because war is just going to look kind of cool when it's not really happening. Right, and you know what? This makes Gundam look like shit. Um, <laughs> like, there's nothing cool about that fight, really. It, it's cool, yeah. the dynamics that go into it, but like the fight itself is like kind of plotting and disappointing. And I think that plays better into... I mean, Gundam and the whole thing is about how war is bad. But this is like a show that really plays into just making war look shitty. Um, yeah. Because, like, the, the battles aren't exciting and dynamic. The, the the robots aren't doing cool things. They're doing very basic things. And it, it's, you know, just kind of miserable to watch. Yeah. When Mikhail is also, like, causing havoc in the colony, most of the Federation suits, you just, like, blast out of the sky. They don't get a chance. Some of them don't see him, and he just hits these, like, you know, completely still mobile suits. Right. It's it's a bad time. And like, there's just nothing. There are like a couple satisfying bits. But overall, it's just about like, hey, war sucks. A lot of bad things happen. And it's, I think it it is a strong contender for like Gundam's actual anti-war messages. And maybe that's because it, it takes the reins away from Tomino, who wants to tell the new types kind of story and makes it a lot more personal as like, here you're invested in the two people who fight, you know? Yeah. And you you don't want either to lose. Yeah. The uh, the new type plotline, I mean, it's culminated in the, the movie Shars Counterattack. Uh, that was in uh, 1988. In uh, that one, it sort of closes the book on the conflict that's been present since the uh, 0079, since the original Gundam. And it sort of leaves the door open to say, Will this event be like the the great new type awakening, the one that will finally fulfill the promise of new types as people who can understand each other so fully in a single moment that there will be peace? I mean that that doesn't end up being true, but the interesting thing is that gets played as an important plot point in Gundam Unicorn, which is set even after that, mm-hmm. and that's the I think right behind Double O Eighty as a series that tries to push the anti-war message. 
as much as it can to the point where like the final battles kind of a bummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it took that much time really at Unicorn's one of the newer OVAs to really address the idea of the Xeon being right and, you know, all sides of the war having people who you can empathize with. Right. Both sides being valid and having a, a group of people there that are very clearly just in their own way. Yeah. I mean, aside from, well, that does sort of undercut because there's a, another OVA, uh, 8th MS team, which follows two pilots. Uh, and in that case, the Federation pilot and the Xeon pilot fall in love. Mm. Uh, but they continue to be on the opposite sides of the war and does show them wanting to, you know, not have this conflict carry on. Uh, but it's it's a smaller scale story like this one. And it takes place, I think, a, a bit before this does, right? Yeah, it's still in the thick of the one year war. Uh, and it's much more focused on like a ground war. So this one like de-glamorizes war by just showing it is very messy and lacking in glory, you know, being very... Like, uh, very cold. Whereas 8th MS team deglamorized it by showing it as dirty and rough and tiring. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, another thing that I, I got out of this is realizing that the, like, what do these characters do when they know that they've lost? This is another theme that came up, especially with like Steiner's bit on sort of his recognition that the war is lost and the mission ultimately isn't going to mean anything. Like if if they succeed in the mission, war's still over. They're still lost. Ultimately, that you know it's going to go through. But why do they still go through it? What do you do when you know that there's nothing left? Because they're also ready to die. They know that they've been sent here basically to die. And why would they continue to do their job? And I guess that's that's thinking about sort of the, the loyalty to a people at that point. Yeah, and it, it plays into uh, people sort of living into a role they set up for themselves. So Chris doesn't see herself as just a soldier. She sees herself as someone who has to protect the people closest to her. Whereas Bernie doesn't have anyone to protect. Like, all his teammates are much more capable of protecting themselves than he is of protecting them. But in the end, that makes it... He has to decide what his role is. Yeah, and ultimately his role is he wants to protect others. And that happens to be the people he met on this colony in sort of an accident. Yeah. And for Al, too, at his young age, he's not a soldier. He has his whole life ahead of him. And... This sort of defines what it's like to go down a certain road. Uh, and we can pretty safely say he doesn't become a soldier because he never shows up again in any other you know, the media. Right. And, like, even then, he doesn't even really have a concept of losing. Like, it's always, yeah, we're going to win. And then when they lose the first time, it's like, well, next time, charm. You know, he he doesn't even consider losing. Yeah. And Bernie's got, you know, this Bernie and even the Cyclops team have this multi-layered plan where they know that this is a suicide mission, more or less, like there's a little chance, but they've got backups on backups in order to at least do something, you know, they're still going to try to 
destroy the Gundam. They're still going to blow through the fucking colony. They're going to, you know, have this evidence prepared so that if need be, we can hope that the Federation will stop the nuclear attack. Yeah. And all their, a lot of their contingencies too, they, they in general are prepared to die, but they do ultimately leave enough outs that progressively it could still wind down to at least Bernie Guinness escape. Because for as much as they drilled on on him, like he's a fellow soldier, and by the end they they care enough to say one of us should survive, and he counts to be one of us. Yeah, we need someone to you know be able to recount what happened, basically. And it's you know it it's it's definitely a, a story of fighting a losing battle and the the recognition of that, like the the whole thing is about a losing battle. Because I'm sure, even as they're going into this Arctic base, they know that things aren't going their way. Yeah. But they're still living it up. They're still fighting like they always would. You know, they're putting their all into it. And that's kind of, even though they've lost, they have to put 100% in, or they're they're not living up to their potential, and they're, you know, like, kind of humiliating their people. Like, this, you know going to make the Zeons look weaker if they don't go balls to the wall on everything they do yeah. when it's important. And even down to individual moments, like when people are critically wounded, it's all about, uh, like Steiner thinks it's important to Bernie to reiterate it, like, to, you know, to be real with him and to be mm-hmm. like honest with himself instead of trying to live with a sort of comfortable lie. Right, and save face. And uh, right down to even the last moment, like, uh, we, we didn't really touch on it, but when the, the Zaku and the Alex are having their final showdown, uh, the, you see, like, parts of the cockpit break, and, like, it wounds Chris's arm, but it looks like Bernie loses one of his eyes. Like, he doesn't appear to, like, go up, but it looks like it's pretty much done for, and his other one seems barely useful. Like, even if he wins, he's already, like, paid a price physically. <laughs> Right, like, he's basically going to be discharged. Yeah. Also, uh, yeah, the, the way he gets taken out, it is, it's not exactly the same, but it is somewhat reminiscent of the first two mobile suits that you ever see get killed in Gundam. Uh, one Zaku gets hit, and it, its reactor goes off and it explodes. And the second one jumps at the Gundam, and he cuts right through the cockpit to kill it. And this is sort of dually like reminiscent of both of those mm-hmm. but in a much more personal way that these aren't just villains right these aren't just soldiers they are it's bernie yeah and uh then further from that it's uh it's a story about having to move on and these characters deal with it in a number of different ways because, um, I mean, the, the Cyclops team has to move on from the fact that they, they lost this mission and someone ended up dying from it. Bernie has to move on after his team dies. Chris has to move on after she's treated like, you know, like a, a traitor and ultimately gets sent back to Earth. Al has to deal with, well, kind of everything. <laughs> he's he's kind of got, you know, his, his hand is in a lot of pies. He, he did a lot of work in all of these sorts of things Mm -hmm. and it's it's all different ways of treating these people like you know the the cyclops team is going 
not only for their is like for their fallen friend. Like they have to move on and do their job, but they do their job in partially in memory of the what they've done. Continuing, like they they do the mission. They're they're still they're still soldiers. They're still gonna do the soldier things that they do. Yeah. And B- Bernie ends up feeling the same way when all of his friends die. As ultimately he gets back in that cockpit, he knows that he's a soldier. He has to fight. This is what he was put here to do. Yeah, and it's the thing is the, with the way they experience loss. The, it doesn't have a very long tail to it because immediately, like first episode, member of the Cyclops team dies, gets replaced immediately. Uh, you know, the Cyclops team gets wiped out. They almost immediately have to put their plan into motion. Yeah, this is happening within days of each other. Yeah, and the, the idea is sort of, because of the nature of the conflict, no one has time to really dwell on these things or mourn until it's all over. And then the only person left to do it is Al. Yeah, and... And he can't really tell anyone what happened. Yeah, like, it, not only does it implicate him because he's done these bad things, but like... Who's going to listen to this, like, crazy-ass story? Yeah, it is, in a lot of ways, like, if you hadn't seen it yourself, would you believe it? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, like, the story, for being such a small conflict, is huge, just based on the number of things that happen within the life of this child. And he has to carry all of this. He can never speak about it. Um, He can't, he won't have Chris to confide in. Bernie's dead. You know, all the people he thought were friends are dead, um, besides his ones from school, and they can't possibly understand what he's been through. Yeah. And it, it comes up earlier when he's helping Bernie out a lot that he stopped like going to play with his friends. He just get, completely ignores them. Uh, and they don't really seem to think too much on it, but now at this point, like they're completely unrelatable. Like, who's he going to connect with? Maybe his classmate, the, uh, the the young girl in his class. Yeah, she seems she seems mature. Maybe not in the same way, but she's not his friends. <laughs> she's not the one picking up missiles. <laughs> and then I guess in part of that we have um, the the filtered perception of war. And I guess we can attach that to what the war is like for those who aren't special. Everyone, all the main characters in this have a very different idea of what the war means and their place in it. And especially for those on the ground, it means kind of nothing. Like, their their lives aren't affected by it. They're not sending soldiers there. They're not doing much of anything except for sending resources like, you know like you're going to do anyways. Yeah. I thought it was kind of interesting, too, that uh, the new type theory is something that's kind of floated out there, but it's much more for academics and people studying that type of thing specifically in that time period to consider. Mm-hmm. Whereas when Chris finishes her test run of the Gundam, uh, and they're talking about you know the kind of performance levels it would unlock, they just say... It would take a real freak to use this whole power. Like, the new types, the, this cosmically important future of the evolution of mankind is boiled down to these people just be some kind of piloting freak. <laughs> and it's, it's kind of funny, it's because they're not special. Yeah, like, wow, some kind of crazy, like, they kind of, I think they kind of know 
about new types, but I don't know new types. Yeah, the, the whole idea is just we're building something to this impossible human specification, and it's a war machine. Mm-hmm. So it's for someone who's very good at killing things. Right, a real freak, a real sicko, a real nut job. <laughs> um, and, you know, so, you know, they they don't have any perception of this. Like, no one connected to this really knows about new types. Like, I mean, they know they're working for them, but how how many are there? There's, like, one right now? <laughs> At least that's been, like, confirmed and in the battle, you know, in the wars and stuff? Like, so, yeah, as far as the Federation's concerned, and the Xeon soldiers, like, for however much... Uh, Girin talks about the new types and it's this sort of driving force for the people living in space. Cyclops team doesn't really talk about it. Bernie never talks about it. It has nothing to do with the, what they're fighting for. Like, they, they bring up new types, like, once in this entire series, and it's just, this robot's built for them. Yeah. Like, they're also disconnected from the, the combat field, because, again, they're on a neutral territory. They happen to be, you know, testing stuff there, but they may not have seen combat. And the weird thing is, Side 6's neutrality kind of puts them in a position of what the Xeon are talking about. Side 6 is, you know, sympathetic to the Federation on the whole, but, I mean, the detective was suspicious of Chris. They weren't entirely happy about the idea of this mobile suit battle happening at all, and aren't really happy with either side having it. Like, they, they sort of have what the Xeon want, and it seems pretty nice. They just don't have to worry about these bigger conflicts. Yeah, they're, they're so disconnected. And, I mean, we see Al super disconnected from the conflict, but they're not much better. Like, the only thing they have above Al is this sort of moral superiority over Xeons. Mm-hmm. Al just is like, yep, the guys with the coolest weapons, they're the coolest. I like them. And has no concept of the morals. And, like, the other kids kind of don't either. Like, they listen to what their parents say, and the parents say, hey, Zeon's bad. But he's, you know, fighting against that. I mean, maybe on misguided terms, but he's fighting against that as a, hey, ha- you know, do you know Zeon's? Like, do you, uh, you know, have you talked to them? The ones I've talked to are really cool. I mean, he doesn't say that, but that's the idea. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of funny, because he's, he's not wrong about it, but he almost then fails to consider it in the other direction until he realizes Chris is the Gundam pilot. And then, like, he he's neutral, and then he's given a chance to take a sort of morally absolute stance. And that even mm-hmm. that gets shattered. And, you know, as a kid, like, he has this whole different perspective because he, I mean, I think even when he sees that random kid dead, um, he, he, he kind of gets shook up by it, but it, it doesn't last. Like, the only reason he's really shaken up is because suddenly he knows the people in the conflict and not only did someone he really know and appreciate die, someone else like that would have died too if things had gone right. Like ultimately there was no good side for him given the the severity of the conflict going on. Yeah. And ultimately the Xeon, like their mission to initially destroy the Gundam is a net negative on the sort of wider morality of the war because this is a weapon for the Federation who have what, you know, you've been trained to see as a just cause. But then by the end, like, the destruction of the Gundam feels like it's of paramount importance because everyone's lives are at risk. And then it jumps back again to being completely meaningless to destroy the Gundam. 
Now it doesn't even morally matter either way. And that sort of shifting goalpost of what the conflict means, that's that's real war. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the end, some kids still don't get it. Like, they've seen destruction all over, but they're still like, hey, check out my bullet casings. Like... Yeah, that's one of the... Like, with war media and stuff, it's something that's definitely come to the fore a lot more in newer media is the sort of civilian cost. Mm-hmm. I mean... Like, like Captain America: Civil War is entirely about like collateral damage running out of control is a huge deal. But in this time, like this perception of media, you know, it's cool that buildings get knocked down during these battles. Right, like that just shows that a battle happens. It's cool that these things are so powerful. The Gundam is cool because it's so powerful. And like I said a little bit before, like nothing really changes by the end. Al has changed. But the situation hasn't. Chris is going back to Earth. She doesn't know anything about it. She just knows that she stopped this small fight from happening. Like, his friends haven't changed. His friends still have the same perspective. And, like, ultimately, kind of, like, everything... It it all kind of just returns to, uh, like, a uh, the stability that was there at the start. There's, like, you know, I mean, again, there's damage. And Al has certainly changed, but the world still continues on, and very little of life on, you know, the colony has changed. Like, a lot of people don't understand even what happened on the colony. Yeah, a lot of kids are pretty bored by the speech about responsibility and the horrors of war and the sacrifices that were made during it. Like, they just want to, you know, go have fun or do something else and not be in school. And it's kind of weird, because I can think of times like that. I mean... I was in middle school when 9-11 happened, yep, that's... and when I heard about it, it just, it, I couldn't really comprehend it. Yeah, it, it... I mean, I, I knew it was bad. I, I mean, I wasn't nearly as far to the side that mm-hmm. Al was, but, like, I, mean, I can't really also be neutral to the United States as a middle schooler <laughs> growing up in the United States. Like, and I can't really say, like, what is it, what did it mean to people who don't live in America to hear that that happened? Right. I think in a lot of cases, they would be worried in a similar way to the people on side six where, oh, this is going to be, the Federation is going to do something about this, or the Zeon's going to do something about this, and that's going to cause trouble for the, for us. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very disconnected, and in a way that being a kid, like, things that don't concern you, very disconnected. <laughs> like, yeah, at the end of the day, you just say, well, glad that's not me. Yeah, like, you sort of get it, but you don't get it. You're, yeah. you're a dumb idiot kid. And Al has matured because he has very much seen and dealt with the consequences. Yeah. We can't really say, glad it's not me. Yeah. And yeah, it extremely happened to Al. Um, not personally, <laughs> but you know, just around him. And it's, you know, the perception of war has changed for him because it suddenly became very personal, but it hasn't for no one else. Yeah. It's just... It's nuts, um, and it's it's weird how they ended up telling the story, and it's it's kind of cool. Yeah. It it definitely had an impact on future Gundam stories, like I mentioned, Eighth MS Team, Gundam Unicorn. Uh, weirdly, the uh, the next OVA, Gundam 0083 
kind of ignores this. <laughs> Tell it's me about weird it. how it's just very action driven. Because like, oh, the Xeon have stolen. Like the only way it tries to twist morality is Xeon stole a Gundam from the Federation <laughs> that is capable of firing a nuclear weapon, which is against the Antarctic Treaty. So they're clearly violating laws. But other than that, it's just like fast paced action driven thing with like the fights are super cool like you know the Gundam gets grabbed by a, a remote like wired arm and it pulls out a beam rifle and like twirls it in its hand before it shoots the thing off of it <laughs> dope <laughs> yeah no it looks really cool I'm not gonna lie and say it doesn't <laughs> but it, it really lacks that that heart mm-hmm. uh, and I think a lot more people noticed because I think people find 0083 entertaining as a piece of, you know, action media with giant robots in it. But, I mean, I accidentally spoiled the story for someone that I thought they knew it or they didn't care, but they did. But then I said, you're not really going to care about the story either. Like, (laughs) don't worry. Like, I didn't ruin the actual thing you will have wanted to watch 0083 for. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the cool action stuff that see robots are cool and war is great capitalism works <laughs> yeah cue a theme song called the winner <laughs> it's good <laughs> yeah it's a but i mean on a personal level too i can i i still like the gundam games i mean for me i mentioned that i wasn't able to watch a lot of these shows when they came out but it was easier to get the games so those were cheaper and like were starting to get localized after Gundam Wing got really popular in America. Yeah, like there, there was definitely a point where Gundam kind of blew up over here. Yeah. And it was really late and it wasn't thanks to that first game that they put out in America to try to ease people into Gundam. But, you know, Gundam exploded <laughs> with, not Seed, uh, Wing. A Gundam Wing. Yeah. yeah. Wing's the big one. And, and well, that started the American fever. Yeah. And it is kind of interesting because... Even though Wing sort of plays at moral complexity, and I think for a show on Cartoon Network that I could watch after school, it was the most morally complex one. Because right. there'd be times where they'd interact with people who were villains or former villains and had different agendas. In a lot of ways, like it, it can't be that, because the body counts are just absurdly high. The titular Wing Gundam has a rifle that fires out a giant cannon shot that's as powerful as, like, this giant warship-killing machine in the original show. That's just the gun that this one Gundam has. These things are just absurdly destructive, and you... The idea of caring about an individual soldier is almost ridiculous in Wing. You know, Hero, the protagonist of Wing, it, like, he's morally complex, too, because he threatens to kill a girl for inviting him to a party. <laughs> and uh, then it's, it becomes sort of a joke that anyone who he directly says he's going to kill them are people who will definitely survive. <laughs> Sick. But yeah, um, I, I actually thought about, in a similar way to 0083, the, the one Gundam I, I really watched, that's because it's short and about jazz, two of my favorite things, is um, <laughs> Mobile Suit Gundam Thunderbolt, which takes place uh, more or less at the same time as um, 0080 does. It takes place kind of at the at the tail end of the war between these two. And, and it's, it's actually a kind of interesting um, sort of like complete opposite of 0080 because it's taking place in this zone where colonies are destroyed and 
there's just like horrible electrical currents going through the space that damage people. Like it is the most inhospitable place. But these two armies that are like very clearly at wit's end and are sort of like the 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 reserves of the reserves at some point are fighting against yeah, each the other. Rejects, pretty much. Yeah, like like um one of the armies is literally just where the like amputees go and they like do sniping stuff because they can't move around as well and they don't have quite as good mobility. And it's like it's it's so weird to see it as like it's taking place at the exact same time, but it's about how just like it it is about how destructive war is because it shows these people who are like messed up emotionally and physically and just hate each other. Just absolutely hate the shit out of each other and everything that everyone does on both sides. And it's just a it's just a race to the bottom. But yeah. instead of taking that kind of like war is bad thing and like really playing into it instead it gives the it gives the highlights to two characters one who is suddenly given basically prosthetics in the gundam that allow him to move better than he ever moved before and suddenly he has this incredible bloodlust and also this dude who just wants to kill things to feel alive because he's so jaded and you know, like listen to jazz um and it's just like you you give it to these two characters that could be very sympathetic because of their situations, but by the end, they're just like, yeah, we're soldiers and we fucking love killing people. That is what we do. That is what the war is about. And we will be doing it forever because the the two sides here are so opposed to each other in every way. And it's like, takes this real like, yeah, no, Gundams are cool. Um, We're going to fight forever and you'll get to see all mm-hmm. the cool Gundams. And like it's it's such a weird contrast of the other thing I've watched because it takes place at the same time, but it's just the most like opposed message to what <laughs> Warren the Pockets trying to do. <laughs> yeah, it, because Gundam Double Eighty also mirrors the original series by just showing like yeah, here's a Gundam, here's you know Zaku's and stuff like a, a sort of rival character, but when these people aren't like really special, what does that lead to? Like, what, what does that mean? Whereas in Gundam Thunderbolt, like, these people are, in fact, quite special in just how depraved this situation has become. And, like, the Federation Gundam pilot is just human garbage from the outset. He is an absolutely terrible person, even to other people in the Federation. Yeah, like, he's beating up uh, that woman who's, like, going on a coke binge because she can't handle the responsibility of being in charge because so many people have died. Yeah. And he's ju- he he is just like yeah I I just want to pilot the Gundam because I only feel good when I'm the fucking killing people and I'm a huge jack off <laughs> like mm-hmm. and the thing is he's good at it he's he's a good mobile suit pilot yeah and everyone just- wants him to die but he's too good at piloting this mobile suit to die yeah he's good and lucky it's kind of weird as a you know again like a dark mirror of the original series where. Yeah, Amro is a good pilot. He's also lucky, uh, but he's a much more like noble person on the whole, who's just really shaken by you know his situation. And then here's this guy. Like, if, if Amro was a terrible person, what would anyone really do? Like, he does some stuff that's kind of dick moves, but it's because he's a teen. <laughs> but like, who's really emotionally disturbed by the war? But, like, what if he was just a really good pilot, but a terrible person? Like, they. In this war, it doesn't really matter how nice you are. Yeah, and I mean, Thunderbolt has that in the other character, too, who's like, he is more sympathetic, he's going through a lot more, but by the end, it's just like he has this huge bloodlust for killing this dude who killed his friends, and he's he just revels 
in the mobility and it's like an ecstasy to kill people. And that's what both of them are about is like the way that they like deal with the horrors of war is that they keep doing war things. Yeah. And with Gun of Double Eighty, like they're the opposite. They're both good people. They're both really good people and only bad things happen to them. Right. And also they suck at piloting the mobile suits. <laughs> yeah. Though some, now we talked about this earlier, but uh, not on the podcast. But, you know, there's a lot of Gundam media that tries to portray... Some stuff portrays Bernie as, like, not a great pilot, Mm -hmm. which is true. It's not. But some other stuff, because he did all this damage to a Gundam and a damaged Saku, tries to play him up as, like, this ultimate badass. Like, there's a a Gundam game on the GameCube where, like, pilots can level up and stuff, and, like, max-level Chris is as good as lowest-level Bernie. (laughs) Jesus! Who then becomes this, like... God, if you max level out and there's games with like what if scenarios where Bernie lives and has huge stats and can do three times as much damage <laughs> in a Zaku as other people can do in like the wing gun. It's, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And like, because my experience with these characters was first through these games, like that degree to how much that really wasn't true, but sort of became a fan truth was what I thought of with these series. <laughs> and I see it myself. Like, uh, MS Team's another one where, oh, the main character has this rivalry with this better pilot, uh, and he's, you know, very tactically minded and good. And, like, there are a lot of episodes that have that, but his final showdown with his rival character is kind of slapstick and farcical. <laughs> like, he just, like, his arm gets cut off, and he starts, like, slapping the other guy with it. And it's only really, like kind of through luck in his team that he wins. Uh, and it was just so weird to see that for myself, finally. That's why I wanted to watch 0080, actually, is, you know, what what is the reality of the separated from years of fan reaction and, like, reverence, you know, to the initial version, and then sort of the, uh, you know, the, the fan roll-off that can happen with a lot of media where they start making in-jokey stuff about it and it's not too soon or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, I think there are times where people take pictures of Bernie eating a hamburger and, you know, make all sorts of jokes with his eventual fate. Right, sure. Ugh. And last on here, I think you had this listed as what kind of impact this had on future stories, and we went a bit into that. Uh, Is there anything in particular you also want to touch on with that? Um... I mean, there was AFMS team, uh, and there was kind of Unicorn, which definitely emphasized these. There was a lot of side story material, too, that started adding in this, this moral complexity to it. Uh, like, there's an immediate <laughs> follower to uh, Shard's counterattack called uh, Hathaway's Flash that played with this idea of, like, you know, someone being on your side or against you, and it being a very tenuous thing. But... Ultimately, I think that's much more... I think 0080 also made the original series... Like, it, it sort of emphasized that retroactively. Because the original show has sympathetic Xeon characters in it, but it, it feels like it's part of the show. Mm-hmm. Part of the, like, the spectacle and, like, good storytelling that you wouldn't have one-dimensional villains. Okay. Uh, and I think that... I mean, Gundam The Origin, uh, which is a sort of 
more grounded retelling of the original series, and uh, there's some animated movies that spin off and discuss some other parts of characters' histories that aren't really touched on. Uh, those also delve much more into that morality, uh, because it's, it's sort of opened the gates to that kind of thing. And there is extended material for 0083, which is that ridiculous action story, but backstories for some of the characters on that show's paint them in a much more sympathetic light. Like there's a character who... posthumously decide that, no, maybe they're okay. (laughs) No, there's like a character who she, uh, she's a Xeon pilot, uh, but she betrays the Xeon to the Federation and in the show itself, it seems like she's just this really slimy, self-centered person who will do anything for, for some gain and for some safety for herself. But then the backstory states that actually... Like, she got blamed for a lot of things that Zeon did that weren't her fault, but ever since that time, she took it upon herself to, to formulate this lengthy revenge against them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's hardly Shakespeare, but, you know. Sure. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking of, like, the, the most recent, like, mainline Gundam, uh, Iron-Blooded Orphans. I know is fronted by the writer Mario Kata, who is known for doing a lot more like personal introspective stories like um, like Anohana or Toradora and things like that. And I know that Iron-Blooded Orphans deals a lot more with the, the heavier issues that are kind of outside the war, but also within it, like really getting into like how fucked up child soldiers are and like neo-colonialism mm-hmm. and things like that. And I think this may have been like a uh, an opening for more discussion on things surrounding the war, especially with how frequently uh, like Tomino has kind of like separated himself from Gundam as it's moved forward. Like he's he's had his hand in plenty of series going on, like Turn A and all that. But like, there's so much Gundam, and there's a lot of it that hasn't been touched by Tomino. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I feel like some of his, a lot of his storytelling, I I do appreciate it, and it was very forward-thinking, but there's a lot you can go back to, and it it feels lacking in some way, you know, some some emphasis on a type of character. Uh, There is some kind of weird stuff with young women characters in Double Zeta Gundam and Char's Counterattack that has uncomfortable subtext to it. Mm Mm-hmm. Which does detract from it, but 080, like, watching it in a modern context, it, it really doesn't have anything that's off-putting in that way, and I think it's a good point to look at compared to the original series, which has stuff like a character who you're supposed to think is really cool slapping a woman to to knock some sense into her or whatever. It's It's aged really well for all of that. It's graceful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even the animation is, like, pretty good, like, especially during the action scenes, like, it's very fluid in a way that even sometimes modern anime isn't. Yeah, it's it's got a very hand-drawn look to it. I guess that's the easiest way to put it. But it also doesn't suffer from, with its budget, it doesn't suffer from cheapness, because even the compilation movies for Gundam, the third one, they ended up doing a lot of new animation because they changed one of the machines a character pilot, so they had to reanimate oh. a lot of the scenes where it shows up. And also they replaced the sort of uh, the jet fighters with, instead of ones that sort of combine into armor add-ons for the Gundam, they just put add-ons onto the jet fighters 
that they already had, which looks much more practical. Mm-hmm. Um, though there is actually a scene in the third movie where a character gets out of her jet and you can see it's the old design. <laughs> but there are a lot of moments that look really kind of laughably cheap where something is not animated and it just sort of shrinks and fades into the background <laughs> to show it flying away like it's a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. <laughs> Whoops. Yeah, but this, it's the kind of thing where it's not really lacking in any way, though. Having seen the, um, I've seen the clean-up version of the, uh, the G-Gundam intro, and it's wild to know how much detail is even lost from these things that look pretty good. Mm-hmm. So I can, uh, hopefully this thing will get uh, a digital touch-up and remaster sometime, because I think of all the Gundam properties, it, it likely deserves it the most. Well... I got some good news for you in the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Before we get to that, though, uh-huh. I, I kind of want to discuss um, <laughs> what what it, like we we've talked about it in general, but like ultimate impressions of uh, 0080 as a, a, as a product. I mean, positive, negative. Where where you're like kind of like disappointments. Anything really personal that touched, you know, that touched you? I mean, I, I'd say it's a story that's sort of... You can tell it's a good story where you know the outcome, but seeing it unfold in detail can still have an effect on you. Like, when I finished the final episode, like, I knew Bernie was going to die for nothing, but it just, it still sort of hit me, and I, I still kind of felt like I needed to take a second... Yeah, because you don't you don't want any of those characters to lose. It does a really good job of presenting all of the major players as, in some way, sympathetic. Yeah, except Colonel Kelly. <laughs> well, look, he's he's so he's so unimportant that he dies off screen. Look, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he was still on the base. He just sent out Von Helsing, and that guy got arrested. But it's just it's so unglamorous to just have this like. Like, it's so weird to set up these super evil characters, and then it's just, oh, they got arrested. Yeah, exactly. Because there is uh, some media I'd seen where, like, and it did kind of influence how I remember the show playing out, where the nuke is a present threat. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the actions of Bernie are now worthwhile and heroic, and he, in some cases, he'll be shown to survive. Right. But, and, like, obviously, well, I wasn't, you know, off course enough to think that that didn't happen, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, it, it does sort of add up, because even if the new was a threat, like, his his battle is tragic because of the characters involved. So, that it has these layers to it where something bad becomes something worse is much more interesting than it was the difference between being a good thing and a bad thing outright. Mm-hmm. And that's something I appreciated more upon watching it, as opposed to just sort of hearing about it. Yeah, and I think uh, for me, like, I, again, not someone who's like super into Gundam, but definitely watched like the most um, hoorah, like presenting war as cool narrative. It This is a very like cool contrast of just what Gundam could do to make itself more sympathetic and really treat its anti-war message uh, a lot stronger than just like here's some cool robots killing each other oh wait no the war's over kind of thing like 
there's there's a there's a gravitas to it because they make the 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 actual conflict so small, so human, so relatable of sort of like this the finding sort of the the desire to you know or finding the drive to fight and finding the thing that you believe in. It it does a really good job of that. And even if I'm like frustrated by um the existence of um like Al's lack of awareness, like it plays mm-hmm. into the grander narrative, it still ends up meaning something, even if I'm frustrated with every third thing he says. <laughs> like <laughs> Al still is a good proxy for the audience. Because I think a lot of audience up to that probably came into 0080 going, oh, cool robots, and maybe come out like looking a little more at the messages. And from what I understand, this story also appealed a lot to non, like non-fans, because it wasn't about the new types. It was something a lot smaller. It was a, it was a digestible, smaller story. Yeah, because as I mentioned earlier, like the, the colonies being... O'Neill cylinders and having a sort of scientific explanation for them feels very Star Trek. And then the new type stuff feels very Star Wars. And Gundam's kind of both in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, obviously, with those cultural forces exist there as well, but this is like for their own product. Right. This, this, th- I mean, they're going to attach, I think, greater to uh, content that comes from them. Yeah. And so for them, like this media, you know, this franchise that has this national recognition, uh, they know enough about it to think like, oh, cool. like, there's lots of people I know now who don't know a thing about Gundam, but have gotten really into the like, modeling kits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like in exercise and craft with mechanical designs they like. Uh, so it, it has that kind of effect of being uh, a big cultural product that everyone's aware of, but you can come into this and have those expectations or else Google Model Kit action show, and you will understand that it is a subversion. Mm-hmm. Just not as much as if you come in watching the other shows. Yeah, and I, I, I remember reading, it might have been a year ago, maybe two years ago, like an interview done for a bunch of college students in Japan, and the sort of idea that a lot of them, or like, you know, a majority of them had not watched Gundam because of the the breadth of how much there is like it's intimidating mm, it's it's a lot and i think you know there there is something to stories like this that are quick and simple um you know like a lot of the other ones are really long they're 50 episodes they're 100 episodes you know they have these sequels yeah or three three hour movies or two hour movies that condense a lot yeah and like things like you know even things like that and like the gundam the origin stuff coming out and Things like this, or Thunderbolt, where it's like four episode seasons, gives a, an in, basically, to it. And I think 0080 does a really good job, because I think it's the, it, as far as I, as far as I'm aware, the best representation of the real, like, anti-war stuff. Whereas, like, the other ones will be an introduction to the cool robot stuff. Yeah. And I will say... um that cool robot thing. There's actually speaking of memes. There's that expanding brain one, and the lowest level brain is wow cool robot, and then the like exploding galaxy mind level one is wow cool. And the thing is, yeah, I remember seeing that. Yeah, it does also reflect kind of how I've come around to this kind of thing <laughs> in real life with like war with machines of war. Because remember, when I was young. It's like oh, jet fighters. These things are awesome. 
And I go to the air and water show. I'm like, yeah, oh man, that's a that's an F-22. It's the cutting-edge stealth fighter jet, which isn't even true. It's a piece of shit. <laughs> like, cracks in the rain. But, you know, the, the fantasy, like, oh, stealth fighter jet. And then I got older to the point of, like, you know, this is billions of dollars of tax money that could be used to feed the poor, or fix roads, improve infrastructure, you know, all these other things. And I started getting a real distaste for all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And now, at this point, we're like, it's not the fighter jets themselves that I really take issue with as, like, pieces of engineering or something or what they're capable of. It's, you know, it's the real cost they have. But I can still think, you know, if I'm playing Ace Combat or something, and it's like, oh, sweet, the F-22 stealth fighter jet. (laughs) This thing's awesome. It's like, I can be happy that it's in a game, but also upset at the reality of, like, the billions of dollars it takes away from other things in my life. Uh, And, you know, come around to... This thing shouldn't be real, but it's cool in a video game that's not real either. Yeah, like there's the, the the sort of disconnect where you can take issue with the thing in it, but also recognize it as a piece of media and respect other things about it. Yeah. And that's a disconnect that I think happens a lot with like um, villain characters in particular. It's like you see people taking these huge sides where like this villain is very bad and also this villain is a perfect sweetheart who has never done anything wrong and is justified in all actions. Mm-hmm. And that we're, I mean, this is, I, I think it's just a larger thing of fandom as a whole is losing that middle where you recognize that characters are inherently flawed and allow them to sometimes be bad. Yeah. And if a, if a villain is interesting, that's not, all, that's not just because the writer wants you to like them or think they're cool or justified. It's because that's good storytelling, that the villain is interesting. And ultimately, at the end, you can say that someone is interesting in the way they go about their actions, but their actions themselves can still be you know, deplorable and, and cruel and ultimately something you want stopped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, like, that's the thing that there is there is a nuance there, and it's important to see sort of like the the good and bad parts of it. Like you know, Gundam really is more about cool robots than it is about anti-war. But you can also see the anti-war elements and go, "That's cool," and also then go, "Hey, cool robot." You know that that one looks dope as hell because you know what? There are a lot of dope-looking Gundams. Let's be fair. Yeah, just you know, consider the implications of putting on a accurate Zeon outfit and saluting and saying "Sieg Zeon," which is very. <laughs> reminiscent of Heil Hitler. <laughs> like, you know, maybe think about what that means and what that imaging is supposed to be telling you instead of just thinking, this is dope too. Like, that's a step beyond thinking that a Zaku looks cool. Right, like, you definitely go like, okay, well, that's bad. That is a bad thing that they're doing. And that doesn't immediately, like, hurt them as a character. Like, you can have a, a villain character who's still sympathetic in some way, but you also have to recognize these implications, the things they're putting on these characters. Yeah. And that's the good thing about 0080, bringing it back. Uh, all the characters are sympathetic, and you understand even when they do bad things, the, the, the reasons behind why they're doing it, and why these characters think it's right. And I, I think that's cool. I mean, it, it's got... I mean, it also, with six episodes, it's got some like pacing issues, some weird starts and stops, but it's, I think it, it, it as a whole is a, is a strong story and a strong narrative. Yeah. And also, um, you said that you're looking for some kind of remaster. Well, not only did a, a DVD release come out of it um, 
January of this year. They have a Blu-ray, like, upscale remaster 4K version of it coming out uh, at the end of August of this year. Oh. So they are looking to to release sort of these, you know, this this bigger version of it to really update. And I think that's been happening a lot with older series in general that they have the masters for, is being able to kind of, you know, up-res and give this this quality fidelity to these series that couldn't have it just because of the technology at the time. Yeah. With Gundam, it's it had its big explosion uh, on Toonami in the uh, early 2000s. Uh, and then they were airing the original series and then actually like a product of 9-11 earlier that happened and they stopped airing the original series because it was a little too real to show all these buildings get blown up. And it sort of found its speed again with Gundam Seed, but that was just kind of... Bad. I mean, I, the, I, yeah, the show itself I think is terrible and also its presence in the West it was just... It didn't really feel like Gundam was a thing that mattered. It wasn't really on people's minds or, you know... It was just another show that was on, mm-hmm. uh, and it had some name recognition. But now it's sort of come back because I think a lot of people have understood what's good and like and what's lacking in Gundam to be able to come into it with proper expectations. And it's slowly been ticking back to the point that now a full scale like game console release is going to happen at the end of this year. <laughs> and there's a lot of people who are much more interested in it than you would see in previous years. It's and the shows are getting re-released on DVD and Blu-ray in America. It's it's coming back. Yeah, I think it's interesting that this one is coming out in particular. Is like that's a that's a big surprise for a thing that's like a side story. It's like not main Gundam, but yeah, it's it's got it's got a Blu-ray coming out, which I assume in some way will make it to the West. Maybe not with all the bonus stuff that they're putting together, but a lot of like Japanese only Blu-rays have been coming with English subtitles, anyways. So I think they understand where some of their audience comes from. Yeah, as much as I do like the uh, the voice talents of uh, Michael Kopps as Char, Brad Swale as Amaro, there's also some some kind of noticeable limitations to how they've localized it, such as Brad Swale, the voice of Amaro Ray, is also the voice of Catra, one of the main Gundam pilots in Gundam mm-hmm. Wing, and Setsuna, the main character of Gundam Double O. That's three main characters one guy voices. <laughs> Uh, dub, dub, dubs were definitely very different for a while. Yeah, and there's still definitely like the, a lot of I like dubs, the dub but... for this show, though. I think they the, 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 the cast of uh, 0080 do a really good job in English. Yeah. Like, the, the lip syncing's clearly not changed, but it's not egregious, really. Right, like, like, the actual acting and stuff feels real. It feels legitimate. And, it like, like quality was put into it in a way that they probably didn't in, what, 2001 when it got dubbed? Like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of effort put into it to make these characters good and it it works I think yeah I actually uh, the versions I watched I sort of switched between Japanese with subtitles and the dub and they felt equally legitimate like I never felt like I was looking at a different character really which can be the case in some dubs where like uh, somehow I ended up watching the entirety of the Soul Eater anime which is okay I think it's got some kind of neat stuff to it. Uh, but I watched the whole thing with uh, with subtitles, and then I heard the dub. I'm like, this characterization doesn't seem like the same person at all, and to like no end. Well, I also have to recognize that Soul Eater came out with like a a group of shows where Four Kids was really like getting their hands messy, changing things. Ah, okay, it's Four Kids. <laughs> Never mind. Like you know, like 
things like it's in things in that same vein, like Shaman King definitely got touched in a way that like kind of changed a lot of the the context because of things that they felt were uncomfortable for children, you know? Think things get weird yeah. when you get into there. But like Full Metal Alchemist, just because of who grabbed it, that didn't get touched in the same way. And, you know, people hold that up really well. But that four kids era definitely like bungled i think more shows than it improved mm-hmm. um i mean because it definitely improved some shows uh it, it, it un- unexplicably and like have created these like weird microcultures around them yeah you know and so that that's not bad but like four kids definitely like i think changed the context of a lot of things and you know it in a way did distill a lot of shows that could have improved but this came out at a time where this this just got the treatment it got and it was you know, it it's good. Yeah, no one eats a rice ball and calls it a jelly donut. Right. No, no one's doing that. No one picks up a rice ball and just says, "What the heck is this?" Like in, in disbelief. <laughs> uh, that that kind of thing. And it's yeah. yeah. Anything else you want to say before we we close up shop here? Um, I think the Alex Gundam actually made me realize that uh, blue and white's my favorite color combination. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, it uh, it's a good looking it, Gundam, and that's yeah, yeah. Actually, a lot of the designs in Double O Eighty are are pretty neat. Like, and they they're not just like the same thing. They are given like backstory to say these are different. These are improvements on these older models. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, uh, the the GM Command, which is the model you see in this show, uh, I think it. I don't remember if it debuted originally for this purpose, but it did show up in a game on the Sega Saturn earlier called uh, Blue Destiny, which was their first time handling like a side story as purely a video game series. Um, but in either case, actually, I found out years later, because I thought Master Chief from Halo looked kind of like one, and apparently the Master Chief design is directly inspired by the GM command. <laughs> huh. That's interesting. Yeah. And it's it's definitely like... They are simple but effective designs reminiscent of early Gundam. Because you look at some of the later Gundams and they are wild. Yeah, they transform into all sorts of wacky shit. Like, the, the, there's the one from Thunderbolt with the four shields and stuff. And, like, from, like, build fighters, they're all built around, like, these kind of, like, vague, huge stereotypes. Like, there's the, there's this crazy, um, samurai one. <laughs> <laughs> and like it's like they they definitely got a lot more specific and stuff I think as it's gone on just because they need to continue to differentiate and kind of like build upon it and like bear guy exists. <laughs> but this still marks a very like simple accessible Gundam, you know, like uh design. Yeah. And hey, if you are sad about the outcome of Gundam 0080, uh, one of the people who works on Build Fighters said that the Build Fighters universe is Valhalla for Gundam characters, so, you know, Cyclops <laughs> team somewhere in the Build Fighters universe, living it up, fighting Gunbla, or just chilling out. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a screen cap of, I think it might be Build Fighters Try, where it has a cameo by characters who suspiciously look like Chris and Bernie and Al. <laughs> so, you know, maybe they... <laughs> Maybe they found their maybe they found their perfect place, the the Build Fighters universe where <laughs> they just play with Gunpla. Nice. But yeah. Um. I, I it's interesting because I I felt like after Thunderbolt I, I I was pretty well done 
with Gundam. <laughs> like, I-, I had gotten the Gundam experience. But this this made me rethink and think, you know, like, 8th MS team might be interesting to look into and stuff like that. Like, there, there, there's still maybe more to mine from Gundam going forward. Yeah, I think it's a big ask to say, watch it all. And even as someone who's a fan of it, I I don't really think that like if you if you have a job or anything, it's really unreasonable to ask someone to watch all. Of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I haven't seen all of the original series. I just haven't. I I know some of the differences with the movies, but I think in this case, like Gundam Double Eighties worthwhile, Eighth MS Team's worthwhile, uh, Unicorns worthwhile. And then you go to G Gundam for the complete polar opposite of just cool robots fight. The distillation of that idea that removes all politics from it, from what I understand. I, I have meant to actually go back to that one, if nothing else, because everyone talks it up in such a way. Yeah, that's definitely sort of completely swings outside of the uh, the war is bad aspect of Gundam. It does have a, a message to it, but it also has a character who's so good at Kung Fu that he can beat several people armed with assault rifles, and then gets into a Gundam and does Gundam Kung Fu. <laughs> and, like, a lot of people hated that because it was so different. Yeah, but that's another example of a fan opinion sort of changing the the wider perception of shows. Where, oh, gee, Gundam's this betrayal of the original meaning of Gundam. Or, like, oh, man, Bernie was a total badass in 0080. Right. Uh, like I remember think, like writing off Gundam X for a long time. I, I, I'm kind of interested in watching that one because it looks very similar to Gundam Wing in mm-hmm. a way, and it seems like it seemed like I was told it's like oh it's a boring trudge through a wasteland and things. I haven't seen it, but now like seeing this makes me more compelled to to watch it for myself and actually like what do I think about it? Yeah, because clearly fans have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it, it's it's interesting in how it's changed a perspective, and I think that's that's cool. But we're I think we're we're hitting a, a good point to stop. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you on the show, Sid. Yeah, glad to be on here to talk about this show that uh, otherwise I don't think I would have really given a chance. <laughs> yeah, and I mean I was kind of looking for a way to force myself to actually sit down and watch a show because I'm really bad at following shows in general. Like, I, you know, oh, hey, all of Iron-Blooded Orphans is up to stream. All of Reconquista and G is up to stream. I'm like, oh, that's cool. I'll get around to it sometime. And then that, that is gone mm-hmm. by the next time I've even considered watching it and wasn't going to watch it anyway. It, it's nice that um, even though, like, Gundam.info, like, switches them out, Crunchyroll has been getting a lot of streaming rights for them, which is a nice way to be able to to kind of pick and choose a lot of Gundam stuff to be able to access. Like, there are definitely, like, ways to see Gundam at this point. Though, that wasn't true for a while, so I get it. Yeah, it is kind of a shame to, you know, have to deal with the reality of the fact that, like, I'm an older person with a full-time job now. Like, back when I had all the energy, like... When I mentioned that I played a lot of those Gundam games, like I downloaded a Wonders Bandai Wonderswan emulator, <laughs> played SD Gundam G Generation Gather B2, which is not in English. I didn't know Japanese. I beat that game. <laughs> I beat like the majority of that game except the stuff that you can only unlock with like a special Japanese cell phone service. <laughs> and 
I, I mean, I thought it was great. I had a great time playing it, but like, what was the story? I don't know. The, the guy from Gundam Wing talked to the guy from the original Gundam for a second about something, I guess. <laughs> Um, but like that's, and also I was constantly grounded at like my entire pre-college life. I was like grounded all the time. Mm -hmm. So like I'm grounded and I still have the time to beat the hell out of this game in a language I don't understand. That's how much energy I had to just like dive into Gundam. And that's just impossible Uh, now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, But you know, so it's good to have something, some kind of structure to, to drive me to watch it. And, uh, I'm glad I did, and I hope that other people who may have not given the other shows a shot can at least give Double Eighty a shot. Yeah, because it's it's it is separated from Gundam in a way that makes it a lot easier to jump in. You don't have to know, you know, the ten years of lore going up to it. You might just have to Google what a new type is, like I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, thanks for being on the show. Uh, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at BeamsplashX. Uh, there's also the podcast I mentioned, Thought About We Thought About Games, uh, which is at Thought ABT Games. Uh, you might notice that the episode release schedule is pretty erratic because the first two I did while I was unemployed, so it was super easy to get them done. <laughs> and then once I tried to figure out like the the sort of schedule of trying to fit a podcast into having a full time job was pretty difficult. Mm-hmm. I know when I was set to record the third episode, my hard drive died while I was still unemployed, so I couldn't replace it. Um, the episodes are pretty lengthy, but uh, the way we approach it is that it's a game that we have like a fondness for and that we've played anyway. We don't play whoever I have on. It's a rotating panel of guests. They're not people who played the game on assignment because they had to. It's all people who have some kind of fond memory of it, because I think that's a different approach to how you would look at something instead of I gotta beat this in time to record it for the show. It's, you know, like, yeah, I remember playing this and I took my time with it and I had this experience with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of the inverse of how I approach this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's, thank you for being on here, though. And it, yeah, it's, it's cool, you know? We need different perspectives everywhere. Everywhere, not everyone can have a Games Club podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, uh, I write music, but I mean, I guess it should be known to the people of the show because I wrote this opening and two others, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's three openings deep. So yeah, uh, it's quite, it was much easier for this show because uh, you might notice my music release schedule is also erratic because I'm much better at writing the intros to songs than the rest of them. And guess what a podcast <laughs> intro <laughs> It's just It's just 30 seconds of a song. It's great. Uh, but yeah, so I have all, all that. And yeah, I mean, I've... Uh, yeah, I followed this show from the beginning. I was, I was friends with Torps from before this all started. Bounced some ideas off uh, to get this going. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's really cool to see what it's become. Yeah, and as always, you can find this show, Coco Disaster, at CocoDisaster.com. You can find us on Twitter at, at Coco underscore Disaster. And that, you know, that's, that's the main place to find us. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher. We are on Google Play Music, and there are direct downloads available for each episode via SoundCloud as well. Um, And next up, we'll be doing our seasonal coverage. Uh, Soon coming up is the summer season, so we'll be doing a preview episode for that. And once the spring season ends, we'll be going over that as well. If you have any thoughts about the upcoming season, 
or you want to send in early like reviews of shows that you may have dropped or you're interested in going forward, those can always come to um, chorpswaysa at gmail.com. That's C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y-S-A at gmail.com. And we'll probably read them on air. Yes. <laughs> and to end off this episode, I've been Chorpsaway. And I've been Beam Splash. And sweet dreams. <laughs> <laughs>